Uh, today we are continuing our Dungeons & Dragons Merge World stream story, whatever podcast thing that this all is. It's uh, it's hard to classify it sometimes. Like I like to call it a podcast, but it's not really a podcast in the standard sense because it's primarily video. And then for those of you listening on iTunes and Spotify, it's, it's there afterwards. Um, and most podcasts, a lot of times, are at least a couple people talking or having a guest, and it's just me chatting to myself here, and you folks, of course. But uh, it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing to try to classify what this really is. I get a lot of comments uh, about this where folks are like, "Hey, um, I've never heard someone just tell a story before for D and D." So, uh, Stephen, first time for this. What is this? Okay, Stephen. Um, well, merged worlds is a Dungeons & Dragons story campaign that I have been writing and running for close to 30 years across multiple different groups, characters, and generations. It's been one long, cohesive storyline across multiple groups. Uh, so a year and a half ago, maybe a little less, I decided to start sharing that story. And I get together with you guys, uh, usually for two and a half to three hours, depending on the week or where we are in the story, and I just tell, I'm telling the story. This is episode, what, 43? And uh, I'll be honest, when I first started out doing this, I did not know it was going to take this long to share the story. I'll be honest, I said that before, but I mean it. I, uh, I kind of thought by the time I got to 30 at most, I'd be done. I still have so much left to go. And then we get into the story that's in my head I've never actually got to play. I will continue the story on. So uh, there is a lot of merged worlds in the future. Um, so hopefully those of you who enjoy it will continue to visit us uh, and hear the tale. Um, if you've not heard this before, some of the stuff you may hear may be slightly spoilers for some of the earlier episodes, uh, but these are also available on both iTunes and Spotify as an audio podcast. Uh, it usually takes me three to four days to get the streamed episode up there. Um, but all the way up through episode 42 last week's is already on both of those. Of course, they're free to listen to. Um, if anyone out there listening now or forever later, whenever, has iTunes or Spotify, uh, even if you decide not to give this a shot or it's not your thing, it would be very awesome if you wouldn't mind giving it a follow. Um, a review would be great if you have something to review. I never ask people to just go leave a review if they've never listened. I'd rather you be honest. I'd rather get a negative review than a fake review, you know. Um, but... It would be awesome if you uh, give it a like, a follow, whatever it is. I think Spotify, it's a follow. iTunes, it's a subscribe. In either case, it's free either way. So, yeah, I enjoy telling it. It's uh, been a major part of the majority of my life. Uh, and it's awesome to get to share it with people in a way that I can interact with you and answer questions and tell the story as well. So, Plus, it lets me get into a little bit of the actual D&D side of things as well as just the story. So, uh, we'll, of course, as always, give a little brief recap of where we left off. Our four main heroes, if you will, are off in different parts of the world, doing their own little adventure for the first time. Everybody's separate. Dandy the Kender and her husband Michael, who are hunters of undead, have found themselves uh, sent a cryptic message by Marcus One-Eye, who has been a friend of theirs or an ally, you could say. He's the head of the previous Thieves' Guild of the city of Paxawal. Cryptic message to come to Whispering Hills. He needs their help. Something's wrong. They arrive in the town of Whispering Hills, a 
was an old logging town that is now a mining town <clears throat> because of the merge. Um, it's a small town, day and a half, day or so way out of Paxwell, but not a lot of uh, visitors here. Everyone seems relatively nice and friendly. Uh, the only thing that was slightly amiss is on their first night there, uh, before they went to go to their rooms at the, ho the inn they were staying at, um, the young barmaid made the comment, you should leave right away, before she was called away. But other than that, everyone's been incredibly nice and friendly. But she seemed very concerned. Darsh the Minotaur, uh, waiting for his ship to return to the Minotaur port from one of its merchant runs, uh, as he's built, finishing up the last little bits of his new ship that was being built, the Chimera, which is an elven Minotaur and human vessel uh, designs combined to create a ship unlike any made. Incredibly fast and sturdy. Um, his ship was late. When it did arrive, there was damage. Turns out that both he and the, his personal islands, uh, which goes by the name Darstopia at this point, um, had been attacked by pirates. Hopping in his ship and, of course, on this new chimera and bolting over there as quickly as he can, he arrives in time to find another ship docked at his island that had been attacked by pirates uh, with another minotaur vessel. The ship that had been attacked was a human ship. The humans were attacked by pirates, but the Minotaur vessel coming along saw them. It happened to know the human uh, that was the captain. They were drinking friends, if you will, and the Minotaurs came in to help. The pirates fled. Darstopia was the closest, uh, I guess you could say, shore, safe, safe shore, um, which is where they're headed anyways, uh, because it was carrying Taboric, which is an, um, also a big old Minotaur, <laughs> one of the biggest Minotaurs you've ever seen. Uh, that is also an ambassador for the Kingdom of Firemoon, which is one of the allies of all of our heroes. Who has now uh, got on Darsha's ship as they return back to Kronayar, the Minotaur Kingdom, to make the Emperor know, uh, let him know exactly kind of that the pirates is a wider spread thing than they originally thought. Artemis, our elven cleric of healing, uh, has gone to one of the small towns of the Kingdom of Serenity, of which she is the head cleric of the, of the primary temple uh, because sicknesses and illnesses have started to pop up in some of the towns and this town specifically started to have issues uh, so Miyasha, her second in command of incredibly tall Amazonian female cleric uh, of healing as well went there and ended up in a um, oh Jim <laughs> thank you sir I will save that for tomorrow night's stream Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate that. Um, what I mean by sharing it is Jim donated $10. Every time we get a new member of the membership program or a $10 donation, I spin a wheel and do a shot. But I don't drink on Merge World tonight, so I don't want to be loopy for the story. But tomorrow is going to be a uh, community jackbox night at 9.30 p.m. to midnight. So for those of you who might be interested, swing on by for that. Um, so Artemis herself had to go because Miyasha had somehow fallen into a coma and there was concern. So she races over there with a bunch of other folks uh, to kind of see what's going on and help out as well. Arriving, she's manages to heal Miyasha. Uh, and they begin investigating the town to cause to find out what could happen. And at one point, she decides she wants to be lowered into the city well to check the water. And she gets down there and sure enough, it's poisoned. And as she's pulled out and they begin to try to clear it, um, kind of a beggar woman uh, 
it's, people are kind of crowded around her finding out about the poison and shock and such. The city guard people are there. And Quan, one of the Knights of Serenity, cuts this woman's hand square off. She screams, everybody freaks out, wondering what's going on, and the woman had a poisoned ring. Um, and she basically, while cussing them out, begins to melt in boils and pus. And it is revealed that she is a cleric of the god of um, pestilence and disease. So now Artemis' belief is that, you know, and, and the woman as she died said, uh, we're not defeated yet, implying that there were more than just her. So that's the issue they have at this time. She was escorted by Weston, a paladin of the light, holy knight, if you will, who also a young man who has uh, recently come to live at the temple, but has already become a very trusted ally. Uh, a couple of the Knights of Serenity, Quan, who I said was already there, as well as Seamus, a very large Little John kind of character, as well as um, Templars, which are knights from her own temple, knight, uh, Warriors of Serenity, and Knights of the Light, which happen to be traveling through the area, who have joined onto the party. Um, and that brings us to Mercy, who is basically lady and or queen of serenity. Um, these knights of the light were traveling through and asked to meet her. And when they showed up, surprisingly enough, the head of them was her father, who she had not seen in many years since before the merge. They were both pulled through. Um, he has since... He was, he was from a world where the Knight of Lights didn't exist, but as the worlds combined on this new one, he joined up with the Knights of the Lights, being a very... Over a year of the merge, gathering up many followers himself, people of that type of goodness, people who, who had the same type of ideals, although they went by the different names. Uh, he, he and the several hundred people that had gathered under him joined up with the Knights of the Light, and he is now the third-ranking leader of the Knights of the Light. He was given leave on traveling through the area to spend some time with his daughter once he found out she was a queen here. Um, he sent two of his head knights and a group of uh, his warriors that were with him, along with Artemis, to offer additional protection, uh, honored to be able to, in any way, assist uh, a cleric of the, of the gods of light. I know she's a god of healing, so on and so forth. Uh, hello, Ross. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, a little harsh if you've never heard any of the earlier stuff, I know. Um, he had sent some there. Well, he had gone with Mercy uh, in the opposite direction to kind of check out the borders and discuss some of the issues that she's run into with the Empire of Oroman, which is a great distance to her southwest, but her biggest concern and, mm, I guess you could say, enemy. On the way, they stopped by this quarry slash mine that was run by a gentleman had uh, there, and Mercy had started to work out a deal to start getting uh, ores and stones and stuff for the building and of uh, better security along her border. She wants to build some type of fort there, if you would, uh, connecting. Right now, there's some small towers spaced apart that can you know beacon each other kind of thing, but she'd like something a bit more defendable. And her father and the rest of the Knights of the, of the Light went with her and some of her people. In the middle of all this, one day, all four of them happen to have bad nightmares. They don't remember the nightmares, but they're troubling. They all wake up feeling slightly tired. Seven days later, all of them have a nightmare where they all are in the same dream. Inside of a, a keep of the Keep of Serenity, although it looks slightly different. They find themselves surrounded by different warriors or clerics of their race and in command of them, 
fighting against a sea of large two- and four-legged draconic creatures. After what felt like days of battle, all they knew is they're defending some chest, a glowing chest in the middle of the keep, and they know what's in there is important, but they don't know what it is. After this battle, a giant dragon arrives, a black dragon. More than black, more of an absence of light would be a better description of how black it is. Speaks to them and prods them on and saying, fight as much as you want, you will give me what I want. Give it now, and you know, so on and so forth. They fight it, and even though they're losing, uh, eventually, a couple of them start to see blue sigils arrive. One of them sees a blue sigil on his shield, and when he picks it up, creates a magical shield that helps defend them. Mercy, that was Darcy who saw that. Mercy sees a uh, weapon with the, the blue glowing sigil, picks it up, and now it does great damage against the, the dragon. The dragon seems shocked by this, that these weapon and shield were here in the dream and fighting against him. And eventually they fight the dragon off, and they return to the land of waking. Um, and that's kind of where we are right now. They all had woken up. They'd all been in a coma, coma for eight hours. The people that were with them, uh, freaking out, because they all just happened to pass out in the middle of where they were. No one, they all had, you know, different place. Darsh was on his ship, and Dandy's at the inn in the, the town of Whispering Hills. They were getting, her and her husband were going to sneak out and try to find some clues to what's going on. When everybody passed out. When everyone arose, they, you know, heard a little bit of information what went on. But the only one that really had a serious issue... Um, Artemis had a little bit of issue. Another wave of sickness had started to hit the people of this town, even though they purified the well, leading them to believe there is something or someone else that is still causing this. And then Mercy was the big one. When she woke up, she learned from um, her peeps that were there, her father as well as, let me grab it here, uh, Seth, who is another one of her knights. She has a group of men that are, that are her knights, basically. Uh, including Ulrich, who's kind of the head knight and now her love interest, official, unofficial. Um, but Seth is one of the ones that handles the border guard specifically. Uh, he is the strategist of the group, um, and he's very knowledgeable about that. So uh, he is there as well as Sir Edward, her father. They were actually about to leave because they heard that the something had happened at the mine where they miners were attacked. They don't know all the details, but they're about to head out. They hated to leave Mercy there, but people of Serenity needed help. Mercy awakens, and even though after eight hours of being in a coma, all of our heroes are exhausted, Mercy still puts her armor on, hops on her horse, and charges forward to help find out what's going on at the mine. And that's where we kind of are now. Now, as I continue with this story, um, I've stressed now over the last little while that they had bad nightmares. Seven days later... They had the joined nightmare. And I stressed at the end of this last time that this was day one since they'd had the nightmare. So clearly, we're counting days here. I'm not going to be giving specifics. Some of the things I'm about to say are going to happen. I may tell a story of one character that takes over two or three days. One takes over one or two. But I will bring everybody back together when days sync up again. Uh, so I'm not going to constantly say, and that was a day, and that was a day. In some areas I will, some I won't. But I will let you know when the storylines resync again for anything that would affect everyone. Hopefully that makes sense. So let's jump on into the story. So, we are going to start with Artemis. Even though she is tired and they, they want her to stay in bed, she's like, nope, 
serious business going on. We have got to take care of this. Um, again, there are several of the soldiers of Serenity, uh, led by Seamus and Quan, that have basically formed a perimeter outside the city, keeping everyone quarantined in, which is also, half of that is them, the other half are the Knights of the Light. Um, of the Knights of the Light, there are two leaders that are, happen to be in this group, two of the head knights, you have to bear with me a moment, i got to get back to their names. Um, uh, yes, Sir Dante and Sir Snyder. So Sir Dante is the one that is staying inside the town with Artemis and her allies helping in this situation. Sir Snyder is running the outside, helping keeping it bordered, staying connected with the uh, Knights of Serenity, or not, the Warriors of Serenity, led by the Knights of Serenity. Runners come between the two, um, but one of the things that is a concern of the quarantine is many of the Knights of uh, Warriors of Serenity and the Knights of Light are not coming into the city for fear of catching whatever is here as well. They're keeping the quarantine, keeping people out, and keeping people in. So Sir Snyder is staying outside with the uh, Warriors of Serenity. Uh, the only Knights of Serenity inside are Seamus and Quan. Miasha, the healer, is still there. Weston, the paladin, is still there, as well as Artemis. And, of course, all of the Templars that she brought. Because those are Knights of the Temple, and there's not a person in the world that's going to stop them from following around Artemis. Uh, and that happens. I want to stress that. When they're walking around the town asking questions or doing their clues, there are ten Templars walking around with them. A lot of times, the Templar will knock on the door, make sure everything looks okay, and then they'll all kind of wait outside until well, she comes back out. They give her the privacy of that. They don't all ten of them stand inside the inn or the store where she's talking or someone's house. But they will definitely be there in a moment's notice to rush in should they need to. Uh, but the Templars don't go anywhere. And there's more than ten. They're taking shifts. Uh, and there was uh, the Templars that were already at the small temple in this city. Um, the, I don't have a name for this guy, and I apologize. But they, the, whoever's in charge of the Templars in this situation, which technically is Weston, really. Um, they basically walk in, and all the other Templars, you're all now under my control. This is what we're doing. And nobody questions that. You know, in a regular military, there might be a little bit of, you know, hey, we can handle this. Hey, this is our temple, or our guard. Not in this situation. Weston walks in and says, this is what's going to happen, and this is how we're going to protect the, the, the Holy Mother. And no one questions that, because that's what they do. These people are knights based on faith. They're not doing it for money or whatever. These people, because they believe in the gods that they worship and the protection of the clerics of that kind. And all of these are sworn to protect serenity and the Holy Mother. I want to point out, Artemis hates it when people call her the Holy Mother. So, you know, I make that happen a lot. But the Holy Mother, um, they don't play with that. And the Templars will protect the Holy Mother against anyone, even the Holy Mother, <laughs> sometimes. If Lucas is there, they're even more emboldened to defy her. But when Lucas, the head of the Templars, isn't, she gets a little bit more of her way. He's not here in this situation. Weston, of course, being an incredibly attractive Brad Pitt-looking paladin, one of the things about paladins is they have a very high charisma. 
uh, unlike a Templar, is a knight of the light, has powers and gifts from the gods specifically. Not only is he a warrior of the light, but like a cleric, he has those type of abilities and stuff that are granted to him by the god as a chosen knight of the light. So the knights of the light are warriors. They, they are fighting evil, representing the light, because the light is the force of good in this universe. But they're not paladins. They don't have the paladin's abilities. A paladin may occasionally be part of that group, and that can happen, but they're not, just as they're knights of the light, they're not. Just as a Templar is not a paladin. It is someone who has devoted their life to the church, but in a military point of way. The defense, the protection, um, and sometimes in the offense. You know? The clerics are like gathering the Templars. This village needs our help. They're being attacked by slavers or criminals or thieves. The Templars will go and crack skull. Because these are people who are doing the God's work at the end of a blade. <laughs> so, kind of thing. But a paladin is a step above all of that. This is a chosen of the God. And unlike in regular Dungeons & Dragons, where a paladin has to be lawful good. Okay? Only paladin. Not in merged worlds. Any God can have a paladin. Or dark paladins. Or can be a paladin of any god. Although, many gods don't have paladins. You are not going to find a paladin of the god of magic. Right? Their chosen is going to be some type of mage. Right? That's just how that's going to work. You know? You're not going to have a, a paladin of some of these things. But, for all intents and purposes, the Emperor of Oromon is a paladin of Pandora. While not really going by that name or using that title, he still goes by the emperor and a cleric. He is, for all intents and purposes, a paladin of Pandora. So to give an example of the, those other ones that are out there. Um, most the gods of war, uh, the god of war doesn't really have paladins per se, which you think would be odd, uh, because he's more about the boon, the gift of it. He will, he will blast it on warriors based on what they're doing. You know what I mean? The God of War oversees battle and war and combat, uh, but not necessarily, there's not really the go out there and make war. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you're my paladin, go out and make wars. It's not that. But how you act in a war, you may call down his blessings, regardless of the side of the war you're on, you may receive his blessings. And things of that nature. So, I did want to touch on that, because I, I, I realized that um, Weston is the first paladin that I've really brought into Merged Worlds, at least in as much that you guys know. There have been small little ones that have popped up as side stories that really weren't important enough characters to carry into the story. Uh, NPCs that may pop up a time and again. But Weston is a long-term character now. He is a part of Serenity, and he's here for a while. So um, I, I felt it was time to kind of touch on what paladins can do. And this, one of his gifts is the ability to detect evil in a certain distance. All the time. Um, unlike the traditional second edition, which is all this is based on, um, Weston's ability is a little different than that. Instead of always detecting 50 foot radius, which that's 100 feet diameter, 50 feet in all direction, that's pretty powerful. I always thought that was a little bit much. So a paladin can detect evil 10 foot radius all the time. So 10 foot in all direction, someone of evil. Someone that is evil, and we're going to specify that in a moment, he knows them. He can sense that you're evil, you're evil. When the woman came in to try to poison Artemis, 
he sensed it in turn, but he wasn't close enough as soon as she got within his range. But Quan was right there, and Quan is basically a monk slash freaking ninja at this point. And as he was coming, she was coming with the poison ring, he saw it and just off with her hand before she could get it close. Um, he didn't sense evil, he just happened to see it. He watches for stuff like that. He is a he is a bodyguard of Serenity for Mercy. He knows his job when he's around Artemis. And but Weston sensed that. But Weston can detect 50-foot radius if he's concentrating and actively doing that. But he can't be doing other things. You know what I mean? He can't be fighting in combat or writing a letter or telling a story. He has to be casting that spell much like a caster would and focus it for a period of time and say, okay, I don't sense anything. But the 10-foot radius is always on. That's how Knights of the Light work at this point. Other paladins could be different. I've actually only really worked with a few of them <laughs> in merged worlds at this point. So they're kind of a as-I-come-across-them situation. But Knights of the Light, which are the most common paladin, as well as uh, paladins of the God of Darkness, which is the evil paladin, those are the ones you're going to see the most often. So I wanted to go on a little bit of a side of that. Again, to justify evil, just because you are an evil individual doesn't mean you're going to set off that spell. You have to have a person, you have to be a person with relatively immediate intent. So let's let's talk about that. So let's, and this is important to the story. That's why I'm kind of getting into the technicals of it. Let's just say you're in a crowded room and someone there is going to assassinate someone soon. They're going to set it off. They have an evil intent going on at the moment. Someone who's an evil person who just happens to be there eating breakfast, probably not going to set it off. They're not there being evil. They're not doing anything individually evil. They may have been evil in the past and going to be evil in the future, but they're not being evil at this moment. They don't have a direct evil plan or plot. Now, what counts as that depends on the situation. I kind of have to decide that as the DM. Um, but someone with evil and active, active evil intent will trigger. Even if the intent is not to Weston or the Paladin or even Artemis. Someone happens to be passing through this town on the way to kill somebody. They're acting in evil intent at this time. That will set it off. Weston only knows someone or something is evil, doesn't know what that intent is. So, wanted to touch on that. So, Artemis, she has purified the well and they have killed the uh, fake beggar woman who was really an evil cleric. The concern, discussing this, Artemis with her friends, is that there may be a coven here. There may be more than one. It could be two. There could be ten. But there could be a group of them that are here for some type of ill intent. And the fact that the illness has popped up in Moonbrook which is one of the largest cities of Serenity, but not Serenity itself. Serenity Keep is the biggest city. But the lands of Serenity, Moonbrook is the largest, means that there could be spreading out in other directions. They have to figure out why. Um, so that's what her concern is. She goes, so we need to find out if there are more here, we've got to figure out what's going on. So, with everything going on, and, the, and at this point, Artemis having to shove the dream out of the way. Because even though in the dream she was there with her friends, she doesn't know if they were really there. It was a nightmare. She remembers every moment of it. But it could still be her dream. They could be parts of that dream. They don't know. Even though they're all having it, 
They all don't know they're technically all having it. Some of them may think that more than others. Artemis is pretty much a, oh, I've, I've got to talk to Mercy. Something's going on with this. Dandy could be like, well, that's real weird. Oh, well, back to the story, you know? Darsh could be like, that's weird. Got to get back to my thing. Artemis and Mercy may be a little bit more, hmm, we know each other enough to know that there's something connecting us and this is a bigger picture thing. Darsh and Dandy are a little bit more in the here and now, if you will. So Artemis, it's now, it's been eight hours. It's early morning. She was out most of the night. Um, she's like, we're going to have to go about this a little bit differently. She goes, just, we found the well, and there have been Templars stationed at the well since then, not allowing anyone to get to it, good or bad. There are other sources of water, but they're not letting anyone else to it for fear that it's not, someone might try to mess with it again. People are quarantined in their homes and are not allowed to be leaving their homes except for on official businesses. The head of the city guard is called in uh, and is part of this conversation as well as the mayor of the town. And they're part of this and they're like, listen, the, the concern is that there's a, that we have to find out if there's more here. And the mayor and the, what, how do we do that? What's the best way to find out? Um, and Talking about this, Artemis with her people, and the decision is that, well, since they've been there, no one's come in or out of town. That's something that their little uh, group of people surrounding has ensured that. So if there is someone here, they're still here. No, they haven't come in and they haven't fled unless they manage to sneak out somehow. That's a concern. So what Artemis decides that she wants to do is she wants to bring everybody together. She understands that's a danger. Some of these people are sick. There's a chance whatever they have could spread to others. But in this situation, he thinks that the best thing to do is to bring the entire town together. Either the town hall, which will fit most of them. It's not a giant town. Or, you know, in the central clearing, something like that. And then have Basin Weston pop off as Detect Evil and see if he can find anybody. Because, obviously, he's going to find, if there's any more here, they're in the middle of evil intent, he's going to find them. And so that's what he's wanting to find out. So, while no one's real happy about this, especially the Templars, who are like, this is a security nightmare. But they are going to pull in the city guard, somewhat. They can't trust the city guard, aren't some of them. They know that the Templars and the clerics are good. They're fine. None of the Templars would be walking around in the temple of the light and of healing that is in this town if they were evil. They are, people here would know. It's kind of how temples work. It's blessed ground at this point. So no one, none of them are the problem. The Templars would not be the same. But people in the city guard, mayors, shop owners, regular populace, adult children, it's hard to know. So they decide that the next day, the city guard is going, because they know people better, are going to start announcing that everyone has to come here for a big, big town meeting and so on and so forth. There's only, there's only maybe three or 400 people in the town. It's not a huge town. That sounds like a lot, but that's really not in the grand scheme of things. Um, and people are start to be brought in. And Weston's just kind of casually walking around through the crowd while this is happening with his regular 10-foot radius on, just you know, getting a head start. See if anything pops up as odd or strange. Um, he met with all the city guard before they were sent out to gather people for that exact same reason. Um, and of course, the people that are there, Weston, Seamus, Quan, Sir, what's his name? Dante. 
you know, all those people, everybody that's in the city is good, right? They know that. And the Knights of the Light, there's no fear of them, and there's no fear of their regular warriors from Serenity. These people from the Keep, Quan and Seamus know these people. They don't have a lot of concern. Little concern, but those people haven't come in since then, so they're not as worried about them. So the concern is in the town. And if you remember, several of the people in the town were not home or not answering their door. That was a concern. So everyone's being gathered up and brought in, and Artemis, and everyone's being told because Artemis wants to address the town. Well, the Holy Mother wants to talk to you in the middle of a plague, and you're going to want to show up for that, mostly, because you want a good healing, and she's probably the best one to do it. So the town folks show up. No one's real angry about it. Some of them are a little ill and sick and would rather not be up out of bed during this. Uh, but there's a good chance for them to see one of the clerics who are also there, the other clerics that came with them, the lower level ones, healing and doing what they can to help those who are ill. So it's kind of a double whammy there. Just like clean up that all in one shot. Artemis begins addressing the crowd. They do not discuss what Weston is doing, but Weston gets smack in the middle of everybody and she can see him casting his spell. She knows what's going on, so do her allies. But the average person, it looks like he's not chanting loudly and waving his hands. He's just standing in the group with his eyes closed, literally focusing. And I kind of always imagine that Detective, when he does that, it's almost like a radar, the sonar kind of thing, where the wave goes. It's like a flat wave, and it kind of goes over shapes, but then someone will flash a color, and they're like, that one. And then he doesn't know what they look, and has to turn and look at the person. In his mind, it's like that person right there, and turns, and that's the one to look at. Um, oh, yeah, I'm put my hand off screen. <laughs> so he's in there and he's doing that Artemis is just trying to keep everybody occupied saying that there are concerns that many, she's, many people have heard of the poisoning of the well that that is true but that her and the clerics and the Templars and the Knights of the Light and the Knights and Warriors of Serenity are going to ensure that whatever is causing this is going to be cleared that she is taking this personally as a goal and she is not going to rest even though she passed out for eight hours uh, until the issue is dealt with. The rumors that there was some type of cleric or person here of the god of uh, plague and harvest, she confirms, to which there's a lot of murmurs in the crowd. She goes, yes. But I want you all to know that we're doing everything to make sure that if there were any others, they're being dealt with. We're aware of the situation, and we're going to make sure that we are here to take care of you until this is cleared up. Which people seem very relieved to hear that. They're all worried, but they're very relieved to hear that from her specifically. Well, she, at one point, Weston kind of looks up, and she looks at him, and he just shakes his head. And she's a little frustrated. She's like, okay, no one here is setting that off. And so she's asked that everyone here stay for a little while, speak with the clerics, take a moment so we can check to make sure that you don't have any issues. Even if you don't need a healing spell, we can check on you, make sure everything's okay. And then before everyone goes home, just to make sure that everybody's all right. This is kind of a way of buying time. Well, Artemis gets down, Weston makes her way up, and she meets with her allies again. Weston's like, she goes, I got nobody. He goes, no one in this crowd is acting on evil intent at this time. Artemis is like, dang it, I was really thinking that was going to work. It was Artemis's plan. <laughs> and so they start talking about it. Well, like, why didn't it work? Well, is, is it something to be blocking it? Weston goes, no, nothing's blocking this. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Artemis knew that. It was, it was one of the city guards like, well, what if someone's blocking it? He's like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> He's like, not being arrogant. This, is, this isn't me doing it. This is the God doing it through me. It doesn't happen. And then Seamus goes, well, who's not here? 
And the man goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, this is this everybody? When your guards went around from door to door, did everybody show up? Is there anyone who's missing? What about those people who didn't answer their doors before? And he goes, well, let me check. And so they start, they send some runners out to talk to the guards who are also there kind of helping line people up. And there was some food and drink and stuff brought out to help keep people calm and stuff. You know, pizza, cookies, donuts, the traditionals. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so that's happening. Um, and it takes about five or ten minutes. And the guards come back and they say, yes, several people did not come. Seven people we weren't able to reach. And they're like, okay, who is it? Several names pop up on the list. You will remember. Let me go back to the list. Uh, let's see. Ba -ba -ba -ba. The Great Oak, where Zelodius Dawnlight, an elven maid, elven male, relatively new to the area, a craftsman and carver of statues, art, and builder of toys and furniture. Um, Middle-aged elf had been in the town for several months. One of the newer people living here. Uh, did not answer the door when they checked on him the day before. Did, no one answered the door today. And while many people, the business owners, are known to go to Moonbrook on occasion because the big market's there on market days and, and take some of their wares to the other towns, he normally would not be gone during this time. Um, the other one was Tannen, the butcher, who they didn't get to meet the first time because he was away, checking on getting meat and such. And uh, young Perrin, who was his apprentice, who they did speak to. You know, it's apprentice, junior butcher, whatever the case may be. I don't know what the term for junior butcher is. <laughs> but if you're a butcher or a junior butcher, I respect you. Um, now Weston had met the young guy. He hadn't set off any radars. But wasn't hardcore looking at the time either. And then the third person that they know did not show up is Sevis, who is a human leather worker whose shop was closed and who also was not there the day before, didn't answer today. They don't know if he's in there. Or again, he's another craftsman that occasionally would go to other towns, Moonbrook being the big one, uh, but they would still go to other towns occasionally as well to take their wares to those cities, right? Uh, why would you not? Especially if there's a festival or something going on in an individual town. Each town has their own special holidays. Um, so you're a leather worker or you're a wood carver or a blacksmith and you know jeweler. This town's having a special thing this weekend. Let's pack up our stuff and go there. People will be looking for stuff. This is a good time to make some money. Just as the people of that town are going to come to this town when we have a holiday. Kind of the regular way it works when you live in a kingdom and all of the towns are in good, uh, good terms. Those are the only people that the town guards were able to find that did not show up. That doesn't mean there weren't a few regular people here and there who were too sick or so on and so forth. Uh, there were some that were just too sick to come and such, but they were old and feebly. None of them really targeted it. Um, and, they, and per the uh, uh, town guard's order, a city guard is outside their house. If you couldn't come, then they sit outside your house and you don't leave or come. Because well, they know what's going on, right? They know that Weston's doing his thing. So if you didn't get him, you're staying in your house until Weston can come see you. Sorry, I missed that. Could you say it again, please? One moment. Shut up, phone. Okay. <laughs> My bad. Uh, so, um, 
They're like, okay. There are a few miscellaneous people. Most of the elderly are ill. Let's hit them first. Because at least we know they answered their doors. They're just too sick to come. Uh, this is also if, if it's a situation where they are just too sick to come for Artemis and Miyasha or some whoever's in this group going to literally heal these people who may need it and have not been able to get to the temple yet. Then we're going to check out these people who we don't know. So, again, they Weston, Artemis, Quan, Seamus, Miyasha, the mayor is not going. He's staying to keep people calm and be chatty and such. Uh, excusing Artemis and Miyasha, well, they see to a few more ill who weren't able to be here. You know, saying, hey, we're going to take care of some other people. Everything's fine. And start allowing some people to go back to their homes in an orderly fashion. Once they've been healed. Once they've already been checked out. And then, of course, there's a couple, the ten Templars that are always with <laughs> That kind of thing. They're always there. And Weston. So they start going to these houses. The city, the mayor, of course, knows who's when the Templar, uh, this person, old Jim, you know, Molly who didn't make it, you know, that kind of thing. He's like, well, I know these people live. Yeah, I'll go. And so the, the head of city guard, not the mayor, takes them around to do that. In each situation, they go to the, they go to the home of the four or five regular folks uh, who were too ill to come. In each situation, Weston gives a thumbs up. They're very relieved to see Artemis and Miyasha making a house call. Um, and in those situations, they, they literally heal the people and help them with... And sometimes it's, okay, we've got the poison or disease out of your system, but you're still weak. Here's some medicine, drink this potion over the next couple days, take two, two of these, call me in the morning kind of thing. There's still that, right? There's still... The, you're, just, you're not immediately healed from something like this. They're healing you of the poison or the corruption in you, but you're not up and just running around. It's not a physical wound, per se. Weston gives a thumbs up on each one of these people. That leaves them with three, technically four other people. There's the butcher and the young man who lives now and works with the butcher. Who got a clear from Weston before, but now with everything else going on, he's, he's not a person to doubt himself, but he's like, I'd like a second look. I wasn't really looking too hard at this kid. I'd like a second look. And then the two craftsmen. The elven craftsman, uh, who is the carver guy, and the human craftsman, who is the leather worker. While this is going on, Artemis, while they're doing this, talks to people. She's having conversations, and we role-played that. And, you know, what have you done the last few days? Who have you seen? What has been different? Trying to find any form of commonality. Between what was going, but between the people who have fallen the ill the earliest or the fastest, and very quickly they see when they find a pattern of sick. This person got sick when they met with this person who was sick, and they can start tracing down where the illness comes. It's trying to find out where it was based, and that's kind of the mystery they're trying to their answer here. So they decide to check the butcher's place first because there are technically two of them there. Kill two birds with one stone. The young man has been living there, and the guy, supposedly, was not in town. But what if he was? That's the question they have to ask themselves. The young guy said, oh no, he left town, he's out checking on the meat at the farm and bringing in some meat and such, he does that. The mayor and the city guard are like, well yeah, he does do that. I mean, that's a regular thing, so that's not out of the ordinary when they first heard it, but now they're concerned. So they go to the butcher shop. 
Of course, with the whole town being basically quarantined that day, none of the businesses really opened, except for the inn and such, where some people traveling through had were staying there and can't leave town. They're not very happy with that. Visitors aren't being as nice about this as the regular people in the town. Um, but they get there, and the shop has been closed all day, which would be expected. Everybody's shops are closed today. But they first start at the door. Hello, Alex. They first start at the front door. Let's knock on that. Weston takes the lead. He's going to be doing the knocking on the door because if someone approaches the door and they're evil on the other side, he's going to know it first. And his thought is he can immediately take the brunt of whatever's coming through the door, if it's a spell or some type of an attack, or maybe at least warn enough to allow everybody to get back. But there's him, three Templars behind him, Artemis behind that with Miasha, and then Seamus and Quan on each side of that, and Templar is all behind. It's a very tight regiment of how they're traveling through the town, and they're keeping an eye out. You know what I mean? Or anybody on a roof with a sniper? Like they're, they're the Templars are in full armor at this point. They've got shields. Most of these carry large shields or tower shields. These are big shields. They are ready to stand in front of the Holy Mother and take whatever comes to protect her. So they get to the butcher shop, knock on the door, no answer. They wait a minute. Somebody inside could be ill. Give them the benefit of the doubt. But after a few minutes and a couple of knocks, no one arrives. They decide to go around behind the butcher shop. So as I mentioned, the butcher shop, they live behind it. It's a home built into the back of this one. Uh, the other two shops, the homes are above them. They're a little bit smaller buildings, the leather worker and the uh, crafter. This one, the butcher is a little bigger of a store. You got meat in there. You know, you got to have coolers. Probably got a cellar and such, and maybe a little bit of an attic. But the main home's in the back. So they go around back to the home door, and they start knocking on that. Maybe a second, they didn't hear it. Again, trying to give the benefit of the doubt. But after five to ten minutes of knocking and no answer, they've got to make a decision. Missed half the story by Stilo. <laughs> I appreciate that, Alex. Thank you. You actually didn't miss too much so far. It's just Artemis doing Artemis. Um, but they're, they're like, we have to make a decision. And normally they'd look to the mayor or they'd look to the head of the guard, right? They'd look to them and say, okay, what are we going to do? Or now that there's Knights of Serenity, which are kind of the higher lyles of the land, you would think they'd look to Sean or Seamus and Quan and so on, West of the Holy Knight. But every single person turns and looks at Artemis. Because in, honestly... Other than Mercy herself, Artemis is considered to be the next most powerful person in Serenity. You know, that's just how it is. Artemis is considered, even though she's not any form of political control, she doesn't take a hand in that with, with Mercy. That is all Mercy running Serenity in the way that she feels fit, because Artemis trusts her. Just as Mercy does not mess with security on the Temple grounds, Lucas and the Templars have that. That's Artemis' place. She runs the temple. But outside the temple, Mercy runs this place. She is the queen of these lands. But with Mercy not here, even though her, her loyal knights are here, everyone's turning to Artemis. Because Artemis is the voice of God. And while she's not really on a daily basis, that's what most people are going to see, especially in a town that's very religious. Alex says, by the way, that's a nice shirt. Thank you very much. This is one of my shirts, actually. 
Uh, this is one of the shirts that I have up on my website, OnlyDraven.com. Shameless plug here in the middle of the stream. If you go to my website, OnlyDraven.com, and click on the ODG store at top, you'll see a bunch of cool different designs and uh, stickers and mugs and shirts and hats and such, including some Merged World such uh, stuff from this very podcast. So check it out. See if there's something you'd like. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I will now sip on orange juice. Artemis doesn't hesitate and looks at Weston and says, kick it in. And Weston doesn't take the second to think about it. He just spins in that big plate mail foot. Because this dude's in full plate mail armor, like, all the time. It's, I mean, maybe just bumbling around the temple on a day off. He's in light armor. <laughs> He's the type of person, his armor is the shiniest armor in the room. You know what I mean? He, he, as a paladin, he, it's part of, to represent the light, he has to do that. He feels that's a representation. He spins turns and just kicks that door. And Seamus is a little impressed. Because Seamus is probably physically the strongest person in this group. I said, Seamus is a very Little John-styled character. That's who he's designed after. Very jovial, very loyal, very fun, but also really big and can do some serious damage when he needs to. He's the type of person who will pick up someone and use them as a weapon to hit other people with. And that's happened in combat on several occasions. He once grabbed a goblin by the leg and beat several other goblins to death with the first goblin. It was rather funny. But, Weston doesn't play. He turns and just kicks that door open. And the door just doesn't kick. Like, you hear splintering wood. Weston puts some serious beef into that. And it's good that he did, because there was literally a wooden bar bracing that across the back. And he kicks it so hard that the bolts that were holding it in place literally pop out. So he doesn't break the door or the beam, but the bolts that were into the stone wall are just pulled out. So the door cracks in, the beam flips off, and the door just swings wide open. And then out comes his sword. Now, many paladins use a two-handed sword. Weston does not. He is a sword and a uh, shield kind of guy. Most of the time. I mean, I've seen him switch back and forth based on the situation. Uh, but yes. I should also mention, for many of the people here uh, who may be relatively new, on my website as well, and this isn't a shameless plug, this is for your help. If you go there, there's a tab at the top that says Characters. And if you touch that, you will see um, minis that I've painted on Hero Forge representing many of the different characters that you've seen here. Our heroes, some of the villains, a lot of the NPCs, the knights. If you're ever looking for a visual reference of the people I'm speaking about, there's a good chance that it's on there. I also post one every day or two on the Merge World's Instagram account. I usually put them there first and then I put them on the website. But if you're looking for a physical reference of who I'm talking about, there's a good chance you'll find them on there. Unless they're Excuse me, a relatively new character that I just haven't got up there yet. So, just throwing that out there if you'd like. I don't have a Weston yet. I have a Weston painted, and Weston will be posted up on the Instagram and the website tomorrow. Uh, he was going to be today, but I'll be honest, I just didn't get a chance to do it. Uh, that Merge World hoodie is looking awesome. Well, thank you. I'm glad you like it. <laughs> How did I make the figures? Um, if you go to Hero Forge, um, it's a site where you can design the figures using multitude of different settings. You can design different races. You can change their posing and such. You can paint them on there. And then you can literally pay them, and they will print them, 3D print them out, and send them to you. 
Um, or for just a smaller price, a few dollars, they'll send you the file where you can 3D print them yourself. Uh, but you can create them, save them on there for free, and screenshot them, which is what I do. And I intend to eventually get some of them, um, but it's a great way for me to show off the characters in the same style and theme, so it's consistent for people to follow. I used to put use actors and actresses and celebrities that best represented the characters, but that didn't always work out as well. It was hard to find pictures that were all the same shape. These look really good on the page on the website because they're very neatly and easy to organize. So there's a lot more of those there now. As a visual reference, even if you're listening to this two years down the road, I'm not taking those down. They're there. <laughs> so again, door busts open. The door was relatively thick, uh, the, the, but the, again, I mentioned it was an older building. Uh, the stone and such that the bolts were drilled into, not super tight, relatively new, actually, it looks like, upon inspection. But they kick it open into the home, and immediately, there's a stank. He has his sword out, and as soon as the smell comes through the door and it hits everybody else... Artemis doesn't get a chance to say a word. Everybody starts drawing weapons. The Templars do. Seamus and Quan do. <laughs> Even the city guard that are with them start to, they're a little bit slower on their feet, but they end up pulling them out as well. Artemis and Miasha are like, okay, it's stinky. Miasha is, is a little less experienced with it. And she's like, well, what is that smell? And Artemis just says, death. That's the smell of death. And Wes and the Templars like, we will, we'll go in and we'll let you know how it is. And Artemis goes, you will not. You will go in first, but I will be accompanying you. I don't know what's in there, and as powerful and strong as you may seem, there are protections that I can afford you that you cannot give yourselves. What she speaks is true, and she spoke with a very authoritative voice. The young lady playing the character specifically spoke in authoritative voice because she knows that if she doesn't, the people just kind of do what they want anyways. Uh, but she did in this situation, and they're like, okay, but give us a moment. Protovarius. Protovarius is the dragon god. God Worms, when you spell W-Y-R-M-S, that's a, a lot of times that's another name for dragons. Uh, a great worm, W-O-R-M is a regular slimy worm, but a W-Y-R-M is another name or term used very often for dragons. So Protovarius is the god of dragons. So, Weston steps in with a couple of the Templars. They give it a minute. Artemis steps in. She tells Miasha to stay outside with the Templars. Now, Miasha doesn't like that, but Artemis commands it. She goes, you stay here. If there's a problem, your healing may be needed. There's no sense both of us walking in there. Miasha's like, well, maybe I should. Artemis goes, you will wait here. And kind of looks at her and gives her a look. And then kind of says, she goes, please remember. I trust you and I love you, but I've walked in these situations more than nearly anyone in this situation and this group has. And they're all like, eh, yeah. Because <laughs> Artemis is always out on adventures with Mercy and them getting in all sorts of trouble. Artemis is like, this is a regular day. I just don't have the rest of my homies here to kind of back me up. But this is what we do. So she doesn't have her weapons out. She's got her little staff that she's carrying because she has a magical staff of Kirin. And she walk, they, they, they make their way in. And at first, you would think, it's a butcher shop. Because it smells like death. There's a difference. Uh, if you've ever been in a butcher shop, you can smell meat. And there's a sweet smell to it. As well as some of the salts and preservatives they use to keep it fresh as long as they can. 
But meat that's just been let to sit and rot, even after just a short period of time, has a very different smell to it. And that's what all of these people here who have been in some type of battle or war or Artemis' type of trouble knows that smell. That's why they started drawing their weapons. They make their in, and in this first room, everything appears relatively normal. It's a common room you'd find in a home. There's a hearth, although it's cold. There's no fire in it. There's no candles or anything lighting anything up. It was getting dark at the time that they came here. So several of the Templars have torches out. They come in and they use them to tight light some of the lights around the room with some candles. And one person literally tossed a torch in the hearth. The fire starts to flare up again. They're like, you know, let's get some light going in case I need my hand free to pull a sword. You know, throws a torch in there and grits his sword back out. It's a little cramped because some of the people are in there. But at this point, there are the first three Templars and Seamus, who went in first, Artemis, Quan, and Seamus. That's who's in there right now. A couple other Templars are standing at the door behind them, uh, but there's no, not really room for them. They're, they will come in should they need to, but right now they're kind of protecting uh, Artemis's back. And there's, again, another like six or seven of them and all these other people standing outside with Miyasha protecting her as well. The downside of splitting them up. So, Seamus starts popping off. He's like, he's like, I need everyone to be quiet for a moment. I need to focus. And Artemis agrees, and she starts casting a spell of her own, quietly. While he's doing detect evil, she's doing detect magic. And they kind of span the room. And almost at the same time, they kind of look at each other and nod. And they turn to everyone else, and Artemis goes, below us. Seamus goes, I sense it there as well. It's beneath us. And they're like, well, what is it? Is it a person? Is it a spirit? Is it a whatever? And he's like, that I don't know, but whatever it is, is beneath us. I'm sensing a very, very strong source of evil. And the further I walk into this room, the more I feel it. A corruption. A stank, if you will. Artemis, again, also very sensitive to these things, especially with her elven sense. Very, very sensitive uh, senses, if you will. Plus, she's also sensitive to corruption and feelings as such. And in this situation, I mean, he's a cleric, of, or he's a paladin of the light of good, but she's a cleric of healing, the direct opposite of disease. This group, this coven, if that's what they found, is the exact opposite and yet enemy of what Artemis represents. And they're not cool with that. Uh, Alex says, it is 3M here, but I love this story too much. Well, I appreciate that, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> so after a quick look, Weston and a couple of the guards start looking, and sure enough, they find some stairs going down into a cellar. Now, this cellar is relatively deep, and it's what you'd expect to find in a butcher shop. There's no refrigeration in this type of situation. You go deep because it stays colder. You make it out of stone. You make it thick to keep the temperature cold. There's a thick, thick door blocking it, but they're able to open it with some effort. The door's not locked, but it does fit very, very tightly. Again, to maintain the smell and to keep the temperature. You would expect that. But when they open the door, 
Weston points out something surprising. The door does have a lock. But the lock is on the inside. Now, why would someone need a lock on the inside where you store your meat? The upside is you're probably not keeping prisoners down there because the lock is on the inside. So it's not something like that, which is something Artemis was worried about. They begin to make their way downstairs. Artemis decides that her, Seamus Kwan, Weston, and the first three Templars are going to go down. Some more Templars are going to, two more Templars are going to stand at the top of the stairs. That's five. The other five are outside protecting Miyasha, as well as some of the city guard. The only person that comes in from the city guard is the head of the guard himself. Uh, which his name, I have it. I gave it last time. Uh, Okay, well, I thought I did. Oh, there it is. Wilbur Kicklighter. He's the, basically the sheriff of this town. He comes in with them. Again, he's been checked multiple times by Weston. There's not a concern, but this is still his town. And he's concerned. This is happening under his nose. And it's stinky. They make their way down the stairs. The smell and the feeling of dread starts to even hit the people who aren't magical people. You know what I mean? The Templars and such, while holy, aren't really... They don't have magical powers. They're just regular people who fight in the name of the Lord's. But even they can feel something creepy as they're going down the stairs. And they reach the bottom, and there's another door. And this one is locked. There's no reason for two. The lock is on the other side again. This door is thicker than outside. Weston's like, it's not going to be easy to open this door. He's like, it's locked and it's thick. Seamus steps up and goes, the hell it isn't. <laughs> and, and Weston smiles. And they start throwing their shoulders against it. And it hurts Seamus a bit. He's not wearing big plate mail like uh, Weston is. So Weston still gets hurt, man. You're wearing plate mail, you throw yourself against the wall, it hurts. But they start wailing themselves against this door at the same time. And it starts shaking really, really hard. Like, they can tell it's going to take a bit, but they're breaking it down. The door is thick, though, and they're deep underground. It's hard to hear if there's anything on the other side of the door. Uh, Donite TV, you are awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I really do. After several minutes of this, the door starts to shake heavy, and they know that they're not far from popping off whatever type of lock or hinge or mechanism that's keeping it locked. And sure enough, finally, with one big hoof, the door busts. Like, when I say breaks, I mean, again, it's not like falls over, pong, like that. But it, the, the lock side of it, the hinge side that was locking it, breaks, and it swings open. The room inside is very dark. That's, that's understandable. They have some torches, but Weston and Seamus aren't holding them. They're up front. Weston again takes his sword and begins to step into the room. But then Artemis calls out. Weston stops just in time before the explosion in front of him goes off. He manages to pull the shield up just enough to block some of what comes at them in that hallway. 
Seamus and Weston are right up front. Weston still has his shield. Seamus is a dude with a really big bunk stick. Uh, <laughs> Seamus doesn't carry a shield. Seamus is a shield. So there's not much to protect him. Weston tries to pull up a little bit to protect them both, but Seamus takes a big brunt of it. And both Weston and Seamus cry out in pain as the acidic of whatever it is splashes and hits waves across them. But they both literally do the instinctive thing to puff themselves up as much as they can to block the tunnel from whatever's coming through to hitting the Templars and Artemis behind them. And Quan, as soon as Artemis calls out, she feels herself being pulled down and Quan's basically on top of her. Like, he's fast. He is very fast. But it all happens in an instant. Seamus is crying out in pain as he falls to his knees. Weston also hurt, but not as bad. Weston has the ability to do some heal, and in this situation, while he wants to rush in and try to see what's causing this, doing so in, in an injured state is not going to help him. He quickly heals himself. He's got a lay on hands ability, but it takes a moment and it takes his focus. So he's not really able to focus on Seamus. These are warriors. Yes, Seamus could be in worse situation, but healing him a little bit and then they both be weak and die doesn't help. Weston at this point is out front. He's got the better gear, the better armor, and he's in the best position to try to protect everyone else. Quan is up in an instant. Trying to pull Seamus aside a bit, back into the hallway. Because stairs, and then a bit of a hallway, and then there's the door. It's not the door's not right at the bottom. I should have specified that. There's a little bit of room there. Trying to help the big man go back. His face is bubbling and boiling and green, and the little blisters are popping. And weird orange and green pus is coming down the side of him. Because he turned, and it's coming down his... He put his arm up. It's coming down his arm... And his face and neck. And part of his hair is burned up a bit from whatever it was. Artemis immediately pops out a big heel on him. Right, Immediately start, pulls out one of her biggest heel spells. Um, and while it's a... Not the biggest heel spell. Save that so you know you need it. It's a pretty good one. And it definitely relieves the pain. And the, the skin immediately starts closing up and stuff. The hair doesn't grow back. And there may be a bit of scarring there. But... Uh, it, it, the, the, the stuff skin starts to take regular shape again and things heal up. While this is going, Weston and the three Templars that were down there rush into the room. And a commotion can be heard from inside. Now that Seamus is dealt with, Quan looks at her, she looks at Quan, and Quan with his swords out, they walk into the room. Quan knows whatever's in there, they're probably going to need Artemis's help. The other two Templars that are waiting at the top of the stairs are starting to come down the stairs. And the city guard dude, he's coming in. But everybody now rushes into this room that you would think is a cellar for the storing of meat. I guess of a kind it is. <clears throat> Butcher is the most accurate word to describe the man that was inside of the room waiting on them. Excuse me. Tannen the Butcher is a large man. Not quite as large as Seamus, but bulkier. Not as tall, but a bulkier dude. Bald and mostly little wisps of hair on the side. 
skin a little bit greasy and such. You know, he's not, he didn't come off as a dirty person, but you know, he looks like a kind of disheveled butcher chopping kind of dude. Hairy dude, of course. Is standing there, not in what you'd expect his butcher clothing, but in robes that clearly show he is a follower of the god of disease. The spell he cast, he did not. He cast a spell. It wasn't throwing acid, which is what they first thought it was. Uh, no, it was literally casting a spell of disease. Uh, and by the way, Sherik, by the way, is the god of famine and disease. That's who he, who he worships. I should be specific on that. Um, Sarah, Seamus comes in, but it's the big man who's physically capable. Or no, Weston comes in and knows this isn't a regular dude. Normally, he'd just run in and start chopping people up. Because, I mean, you know, the bad guys, he says, that's what you do. But he knows that this man, with just his touch, can cause great damage to people. Normally, a paladin is immune to sickness and disease, another one of their perks. And they are against natural. But a magical one has a chance of succeeding. And it's possible this guy's more powerful than Weston is. Weston doesn't know. So while he comes in and he's ready to attack and the Templars take a defensive position with their big shields, the dude begins casting a spell. Weston is trying to go in and attack, but he's trying to do intelligently. He's not just charging in. He's not a bravado, foolish kind of heroic person. He's not an idiot. And the battle begins. The fight starts, and again, Tannen the Butcher is a big dude, and he's holding like a bone sickle scythe kind of thing. He's got, uh, it's not like a, a big two-handed one, but it's a, a pretty big one-handed. And it looks like it's made of metal, but it also looks like it's bone-shaped, almost like a bone made out of metal, if that makes sense, or a bone turned to metal. And it has just icor of some kind of fluids, green funk dripping off of it, that everyone there is smart enough to know they don't want to touch them. And this is a dude who's casting spells and such. And as he's casting spells, you can see the illusion that clerics of this nature will often use fading away as he's no longer focusing it. His skin becomes more gaunt. Part of his skin may even be peeling off. You can even see part of the jaw sticking out. Literally, these are people of decay. Not dead, but they're disease. Leprosy, all that. Most of them are ridden with different types of diseases because literally going around shaking a hand, they have a chance of giving it to someone else. But the fight begins. So the battle goes on, and the battle does not last too long, to be honest with you. It's a relatively easy battle. There are multiple people here with skill. Uh, while Weston is an average level, Seamus, when he finally gets on his feet, and Quan are not. They're very skilled. The Templars are pretty skilled. But most importantly, there's Artemis. Artemis steps into that room, and Artemis starts casting spells. Um, and oddly enough, she starts curing disease. Because to someone like this, using a cure spell on them will literally hurt them. And so Artemis... 
They know that. Artemis knows all about the other gods, just like this other god knows that some of his spells, well, normally would help his people, would hurt Artemis, you know? So he's trying to cast cause disease, but Artemis is much higher level than this dude. So, while there are a couple spells passed, and a couple times people have to defend Artemis from this or that, the battle went relatively uh, seamlessly. Uh, There were a few injuries and hits, uh, but finally Artemis, uh, I can't remember which spell she used, but she used like like a big cure disease on him. Like She got relatively close and was going to do a lay on hands, which would have done serious to a damage to this guy, although it would have run risk on her. Um, and he saw that and was reaching for her to do the same thing. Um, uh, but didn't quite make it because at that point, Seamus took his head. Not Seamus, I'm sorry. Weston took his head. Weston stepped in between them and just like, you will not. And just literally beheads Tannen with that super sharp sword that he carries. Because again, his sword and shield and armor, not regular stuff. It's of the highest quality for Weston. Paladins don't walk around half ass. Immediately, Artemis again goes to see to Seamus. Because while he was in fighting and such, she still wasn't fully healed. Heals him up and then tends to Weston and anybody else that had dealt with any bit of damage. But then, both her and Weston immediately start sanctifying the place. They know they have to. Because the second they stepped into this room, they were weaker than normal. Just like an evil cleric walking onto holy ground, they're walking onto ground that has been sanctified for Sherrick. And they were weaker there than normal. Their spells didn't have quite the kick they normally would, which is why Weston couldn't sense him through the door. It wasn't that he was blocked. It's that literally his powers can't go on consecrated ground. And he didn't know it was consecrated ground until he got through the door. Because the ground itself is not evil. It doesn't have intent. It's odd how that works, but I had to come up with a rule for that. So intent became everything. Now, there are some things that are naturally evil. Beasts and demons and things like that. There are things that will give off an evil aura all the time. Something that's cursed. uh, Things of that nature. But uh, when it comes to the average person, it needs to have evil intent. Would work the same thing for detect good. An average nice person is not going to set off detect good unless they're actively trying to do a good thing. But Artemis then immediately does that. She sends a Templar up and Miyasha comes down looking at the room in horror doesn't hesitate and immediately steps in and start doing the same thing. Sanctifying ground to make it holy is not easy. Takes some pretty powerful spells. But to sanctify ground that has already been sanctified for another god? That other god doesn't like that. It is hard to do. Artemis is high enough level that with the help of Miyasha, they could probably do it. Weston is not per se, sanctifying the ground as much as he is doing things to unsanctify the ground, which sounds odd. He's going around, there are symbols, there are altars. He's busting stuff. He sees something hanging on the wall that's bones in this, and he knows that's in the shape of something that means the God. He breaks it down and he smashes it. He's doing everything that would be paying honor to the God of disease, and he's messing it up. And so he's doing that while Artemis and uh, Miyasha are literally casting spells together. It's a group spell. Um, there's not really a sanctify land spell, so it's something I had to come up with. Um, but it's something that Artemis has used in different situations before. And it's a very weak version of the spell that the god Tavian gave her 
way back when they first came to Serenity and they came into that um, temple. Now there's a little callback for you. You remember that? You remember when they came back here and they came to, before it was Serenity, it was just a little temple in the woods before the kingdom was ever here. They went north in the woods before they found the realm gate and they found that temple and all the undead attacked and such. And that's when Michael first came back. And inside of her, she'd had this spell for a while that Tavian had placed inside of her. And after the battle, she let it go and it just wiped out everything and caused an earthquake and re-sanctified the land. Because that was a god casting a spell through her. Which all spells are, but this was direct. Um, that one had a lot of mojo. The spell she has that, that clerics use for regular is a weaker spell of that. That she didn't make. It's been out there, but I made kind of thing. Um... <laughs> so that happens it takes them most of the evening to get a full picture of what's happened here sadly on the altar that Weston started to break up are the remains of young parents or Pal I can't remember his name, Palin. I couldn't find it in here. Starts with a P is all I remember. But the young lad ripped apart his body, mutated by the sores and stuff that was done to him. Uh, is dead on the altar. Tannen had sacrificed him very recently. Obviously, they just saw him the day before. Probably means the kid was not one of them. And a search of the entire place, they find that there are other remains of humanoids. Mostly bones and such, because they're all missing their meat. As Tannin was being flayed, if you will. Not Tannin, uh, the kid. Tannin was doing to the kid. Casting spells, detecting evil, they find that there is a large amount of beef and venison and pork mixed with something else, and that the wood, not all of it, but some of the meat is purely infected with something, a magical disease or some sort of poison. And so they realize that Tannin has been poisoning the meat and selling it to the good people of this town. Not all of them, not enough to draw too much suspicion on himself, but enough that you sell it to a home, they go home and give it to their family. Maybe, maybe they're picking up some for them and their neighbors. It takes several hours to get done what needs to be done. Sweeney Todd, something like that. Except, is there probably some human meat or humanoid meat in there mixed with the meat? Yes, but not in a, just because that makes you sick. It's in a, they were casting spells on living people that caused them to die by advanced disease, going incredibly fast, and then cor that corrupted ill meat is what was added to the other meat. Very grody. But it takes several hours. By the end of it's done, Artemis and Miyashi have used a good chunk of their spells. Three, four o'clock in the morning at this point. They're exhausted. Artemis was already tired. 
She had a nightmare the day before. She caught a little nap earlier before the big meeting, but not enough to rest. Miyasha is like, we should return to the temple. Get back on holy ground a little bit, recoup a little bit before we go on. And Artemis is like, we can't do that. Hello, Master Heap. Good day. And Weston, not even Seamus and Quan are like, why not? Weston's like, he goes, because there's two other homes we haven't checked yet. And there are. We still have the leather worker. And we still have the, I guess you could say, toy maker. You're not a master heap. You're an hour and a half. <laughs> we started about an hour and a half ago, but that's okay. Uh, it's uh, going well. We still got an hour to an hour and a half left. We may run a little long today. This just the Artemis section is taking a while. I didn't expect it to take as long as it does. But I remember looking back now that a lot of times when we played these D&D adventures, we used to play for an eight or ten hour shift every Sunday. Sometimes longer. Sometimes more than one day if I could get a day off. So, a lot of times, half the day was one of these characters' story, the next, the rest of the half day was the other character's story, and then the next week we played the other two. So there's a lot more detail with the fights, and I'm breezing over some of the steps, of course, that they had to go through. I'm giving you the overview. So, they, uh, they're like, we sure we need to do this? we like, we have to. He was in the middle of doing something. He killed the young man here. It's clearly he was stockpiling a bunch of meat. Everyone thought he was gone. Artemis and Weston, in the talking about it, think that he was going to try to flee. He was doing something to cause something widespread. And then he was going to try to break out. To either do more or spread it more somewhere else. You don't know. Uh, Ashley says, I wish we could do that so hard. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Again, if I can ever get to the point that this is my only gig, I could probably do something like that. But I'm a ways from that. All right, Alex. Have yourself a good night, sir. Working on the... On the, on the sir. No worries. No worries, Master. So they go to the toy maker next. Artemis is a little bummed about this one. Because, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, she'd actually hoped to reach out to him. He, 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 she's heard that he's an incredibly skilled artist and wanted to commission uh, maybe some type of statues, small things and such, for the temple, and maybe even some toys for her son. So she's a little bummed out at the thoughts that she may have to go in there and squish this guy. Uh, but, you know, a cleric's got to do what a cleric's got to do. So again, they make their way to, to this house. It's late in the morning now. And most people have returned home. Words have already been sent out to the city guard, and more Templars and more city guards have shown up around Artemis in them. So now there's like 20 Templars, 30 or 40 city guards. Will I upload the stream? Yeah, the stream will be uploaded and watchable normally within 15 minutes to 20 minutes at most of the stream ending. And it'll be up on iTunes and Spotify within the next 48 hours. I try, I try to quote 48 hours. It takes a bit of time to edit it and I got to fit all that in. But yeah, it'll, it'll be up there. So, no answer at the front door. Well, the home is above both of these, in these, these last two homes. So there is no really, they may have a small back door. And some of the city guard and a couple of Templars are sent around back to make sure nobody flees out the back. In fact, some of the city guard were sent ahead to, stand, to guard around both houses to make sure nobody fled. But they go to the toy maker first. They arrive, knock on the door, no answer. Once again, 
they're going to make their way in. Now, this door, a light door. They don't have to try hard. And they're being a little careful because this guy might not be a bad guy. Why destroy all of his house? All right, Alex, you are welcome. Have a great night, man. They don't want to break his house down if he's not a bad guy. So, you know, they're careful. They kick the door in and what they need to, but try to do it. They literally could just, you know, a hard elbow is going to bust the lock. The door's not that sturdy. It's okay. It's, it's not that strong. Not a big plate mail elbow of Weston, who once again is going in first. Although, being much more cautious. Before they go in, they do a full same 50-foot thing. Last time, they sensed some before they got in there, you'll remember. But they knew it was below them, but not exactly what. They don't sense anything this time, but that doesn't mean anything. Last one, it was sanctified ground. And from what the looks of it, probably where whoever was involved with this met. And of course, there may not be anyone. Could be just, the, it could have been just the butcher and the chicken at, at the fountain. They don't know. They got to be careful. So they go there and they find their way. Inside the house, again, in the store first, lighting it up, looking around. And sure enough, there's cool little statues here and nice furniture. And Artemis, little pang of regret when she sees the toys and stuff on the shelves. Little marionettes and wooden soldiers and uh, carvings of animals and figures that are just very well done. Because again, she's an elf. And this person is an elf. And if this elf is one of these things, man, that's a little bit more of a kick to the head when an elf turns to complete darkness like that. And elves being very uh, snooty-snooty when it comes to beauty and art and such. Uh, such a loss for the world kind of thing. So, again, they start making way through the store, not sensing anything. They look around very, very carefully until they start making their way upstairs. They get up to the personal area. And they don't find anyone in the building. There's no one there. Nothing out of the ordinary that they would expect. They try casting some detect magic and detectable spells on the toys and the statues in case they've been cursed or something. You know, because that, that's, that's, that's another big hit of this to Artemis. Is he, if he's been given corrupt toys to kids, man, she's going to really be mad at this dude. So, uh... But they don't find anything in the store. Again, doesn't mean anything. They do, he may not keep his issues here, right? Whatever he's working on may not be here. But there's no sign of him. They do search around and traveling gear and backpacks and some of the things that he would normally take when he would travel are not there. So it's possible he's not in the town. You remember, he hasn't been seen since they arrived, since the quarantine wall went up around the place. Not finding anything anywhere, they decide to move on to the next house, or the store. That's the leather worker. That's the human dude. They get there, same situation. Weston does his mojo, doesn't sense anything evil. Obviously, there's no sanctified ground that they can feel there. Same situation. Busting the door, not that hard to do. Because, you know, it's on the main street. They're breaking in the door. People looking out the windows like, what the hell's going on? You know, somebody did that in regular. It's going to be noticeable. You're not going to kick it in without making some noise. They kick it in and they make some noise. They go inside again. Same situation. The front room. You see leather goods. Some shoes, some bags, 
Uh, I'm getting purses. Other stuff made out of leather. I can't think of anything offhand. He doesn't do any of the big stuff like saddles and things. His are more uh, like clothing. You'll find some leather clothing. Uh, like I said, belts and such and things of that nature. Uh, his is more clothing based in bags and satchels and such of that nature. Uh, again, very well crafted, the stuff that they see. They make their way up into the personal area. Same situation. There's nobody there. Traveling stuff. Everything's looks like it's lived in. It's not like the place has been left spotless and disappeared like a hotel room. There's some, The bed's not made. There's some clothes in the corner that probably need washed. You know, dirty plate in the sink. Whatever the case may be. It looks lived in. Both houses did. But there's not a big mess. Like There's nothing that would show someone was just there. There's no, you know, still warmth in the fireplace or anything like that. You know, there's nothing that shows that in either house that anyone's been there in at least a couple of days. So they start doing a full search. Now, in Dungeons & Dragons, anybody can search for a secret door. I've not really touched on this before. Shockingly, I realize 43 episodes in. Anybody can search for a secret door. Certain races have a better chance of finding one. Dwarves specifically, uh, gnomes as well. And of course, uh, some thieves have their own special skills to try to find stuff of that nature. Uh, but searching for a secret door, I give everybody a shot. Uh, so normally I have them run a si roll a six-sided. If you roll a one, there's a good chance you found one if there was one there. There are exceptions to those rules. There are some people who make Mastercraft level ones. You know what I mean? If it's made by a dwarf, it's going to be a little harder to find. You know what I mean? If it's magically hidden, doesn't count. That's magical hiding it. But if somebody's just made a relatively one, hidden it behind a bookshelf or something, you're searching, you're pulling out books, looking around, you may have come across something that, that you find it. Sure enough, in their search, Artemis finds a hidden door. Not a door. Uh, like a door. Uh, it's not as big as a door. It's like a big wooden thing you pull off the wall, and there's a space behind there. A good-sized space. Almost the, the size of a trunk. Like a travel trunk, not like an elephant or a trunk. And when they pull it off, they find it... Well, they, she says, hey, there's something back here. And she stands back while Seamus and Weston pull it off. Because Quan is by her side wherever she goes. He's ready to kill anything that pops out of his shadow. Seamus and Weston are doing this, the, shake, the searching and the stuff. They, she goes, I found something. It looks like there's something behind this bookshelf. Seamus is like... All right, and just pulls the bookshelf, lets it fall in the middle of the floor. <laughs> He's like, no, no time to play around with this. And they pull it out, they, they wedge the thing off, and behind it is a big space with just stacks of leather. Leather that hasn't been used yet. Odd place for that. There's even a couple finished, looks like, belts, and maybe one or two small pouches like you put on your like belt pouches or coin purses, things of that nature you'd expect to have a warrior or somebody traveling in this day would have on their belt keep their coins or their keys and such. Weston wants to be cautious. Artemis agrees and they cast some spells on it. And boy does that leather give off a magical stank. Very quickly, they find that that leather is also infected with some type of magical funk 
or disease or plague-like thing that physically coming in contact with it for a prolonged time could very likely spread off to other people. This is a concern. They believe they've possibly found another member of the coven. The house is boarded up. Artemis sends for a couple other average-level clerics to come join Miyasha, and Miyasha is going to be sanctifying this with a bunch of the Templars. They're going to stay there, they're going to hang out. She's going to take care of that. It's just in leather, she can handle that. Artemis wants to go back to the toy store. They need to see if there's a hidden thing there as well. And they tear apart that place. Like Weston and Seamus and Quan go back with several of the Templars, and they tear it apart, they don't find anything. But again, that doesn't mean anything. Word is sent out from the captain of the guard has been hanging out with him. Go, find out. When were these people last seen? What was going on? Who did what? We need to find out where these people are. It's the middle of the night. They're knocking on doors, waking people up. What did you see? What do you know? What do you, when was the last time you saw these people? Takes a few hours to get everything back. Waking up people in the middle of the night. Some of these people still relatively sick. They find out that both of them were seen leaving town three days ago. Well, let me rephrase that. The toy maker left town about three days ago. The leather worker left within hours just before Artemis and everyone showed up. Someone who just happened to be coming back from town themselves, or from, a, from a, visiting a family member at a farmstead some way, came across the toy maker. He was heading north to a small town up there. He'd had a special order for a special uh, wedding going on. Some gifts for the weddings and the birth of a child. He had a couple things he was taking up there. So he was leaving town for a few days to deliver some special orders. Not something he normally did, but it was a fair commission. And he had to get it there in time for the special occasion. Much like that, someone else remembers seeing... The leather worker, although they didn't speak to him, they passed him on the road. He was heading towards Moonbrook, which again is the, one of the larger cities and where the main market is, and the city that he most commonly travels to. No one knows what he was doing or why. They didn't speak with him, but they did see him heading in that direction on the road just a few hours before Artemis and friends came in, because he's going south and... Oh, let me phrase it. He's going south and west. They were coming south and east. So there, there's a road that comes down to this. The road passes through and kind of loops through. Because there's another city down here and up here. So there's three cities kind of on an arc on this end of Serenity. They're exhausted. Their spells are weak. They have gone back to the temple. This information is coming to them while they're at the temple. They have to rest. They're going to have to go after these people. But they have to get some rest. Artemis and Miyasha are going to need their spells back. Number one, because Artemis is leaving Miyasha here, just in case there's somebody else they missed. Leaving you here with a chunk of the Templars. Word is sent out to the Knights of Serenity, or no, the, the Warriors of Serenity, and the Knights of the Light. This is what we found. This is who we're looking for. Even more importantly, no one can come in and out without our approval. Every, there's nobody sleeping now. Everybody in the camp is out there. They're watching this hardcore. 
the townspeople are a little freaked out because they don't know what's all happening. Because, you know, they don't want to give it away in case there's more in there. So she made Artemis, Miyashi, everybody tries to get some rest. They're going to get some rest and then they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do. They decide they're going to have to send some people after both. But Artemis is willing to put her money at this point on the leather worker. Maybe it's the faith in the elf and the fact that they didn't find anything. She knows there's something wrong with the leather worker. And so she's going to Moonbrook and she's taken most of the big name people with her. But a group of Templars, warriors and city guards, are going to be heading towards the other town uh, on the off where they're going to basically have this guy stay where he is until... Because there's a, there's a temple in every town. Have someone in that temple check him out a little bit. And when you can't find him, he's going to stay there until he's cleared by Miyasha or Artemis. They get some rest. Because then in the morning, they're going to head out to find out what these, if these people are involved, what they're doing. But enough about that. Let's talk about somebody else for a little while. This is going to be the shortest one of this section. Darsh is on a boat. It takes several days <laughs> to get back to Kronayar. took several days to get to his islands, even with this super fast ship. It takes a while to travel between these. They're not right next door to each other. Normally, if he wasn't balls of the wall flying it as quickly as he could, straining the crew and straining this new ship to the height of its capabilities, it would take a week and a half, two weeks to get this trip. But he's going to make it in six days, if, or less. He was already two days on the way home when he passed out for the seventh day thing. So it's four more days before he finally makes it with Taborik back to the Empire. The ship comes into place. He immediately sends runners requesting permission to meet with the Emperor. Now, it's, we'll say it's midday. It's not in the middle of the night here. Most people don't just send uh, requests to the Emperor to, hey, I just popped in. I want to talk to you. <laughs> don't me it doesn't happen. But Darcy's is a little bit of a noble. Decent-sized noble. Noble. A little bit of a celebrity in the city, and he's married to the Emperor's cousin. He gets a little bit more sway than the average Joe. And the Emperor uh, kind of has a soft spot for him, because he did save him from the Emperor of Oromon and all that. So, Darsh arrives, and of course, he had several people with him while he was traveling. You know, his regular crew. And I named a couple people in the last one that haven't been getting a lot of uh, regular talk, but have been members of the crew for a while. Uh, Rokar, of course, didn't go with him. That's his cousin. But I mentioned Garrig. Uh, Garrig is a cleric of the God of War and the cleric of Darsh's ship. Um, he was the cleric of the Morgenstern, but now that the Chimera has become the primary ship, he is the cleric of that ship. And he is a dude who just loves a good fight and a good drink. Very good-natured, Probably about 15, 20 years older than Darsh, but still holds his own very easily. Uh, dude loves a bev and loves a punch. I mean, he just likes that. He's a cleric of the god of war for a reason. But he is very big on honorable combat, as most minotaurs are anyways. Uh, but he's a he, he it's in these adventures and this stuff, when Darsh is out on the boat, um, a lot of times Garrig is the guy that Darsh will get advice from. Not on matters of being in a ship or matters of this or that, 
But when it comes to, hey, we're going to go into battle. Hey, this could be a dangerous thing. Hey, I need to build something defensive. You're a more experienced warrior than me. What do you think? What should we do here? And very much he becomes a bit of a, not a father figure, more like an uncle, right? More like an uncle that he and Rokar kind of very quickly bond with. They're not related in any way. And Garrig is a single man who has no children. He's devoted his life to the, to, uh, the temple and uh, can only hope that one day he dies in glorious combat. With a song on his lip and a beer aftertaste in his mouth. You know what I mean? That's, that's his way. Uh, but Garrig, uh, I mentioned earlier, Garrig is the one that sensed that Darsh was in, had cast some spells and could tell that Darsh had been inspelled in during the dream. It wasn't just a dream. There was some magic mojo going on there. Right? Artemis kind of got the same thing from Miasha when she was casting it. Uh, Weston and such. Mercy and Dandy don't have that. They had a bad dream. They wake up. There's nobody magical there to do anything for them. So there's that. But Garrick's like, mm, I'm concerned. That's not normal. <laughs> Darsh is like, you think? And they laugh for a minute. And they're like, yeah, you know, they, they can joke about it. They're like that. And then Jorn, which you mentioned, is his uh, Darsh's personal assistant at this point. And Jorn's, like I said, 16, 17 years old. He's a young minotaur. Not much younger than Darsh was when all this started for Darsh. A couple years younger. Um, but a very smart guy. Very reliable. Very good with numbers, math. Follows orders well. And very loyal to Darsh. Um, so when I say Darsh sends him to do this, it's not a because you're my servant kind of thing. It's like, hey, I need you to go tell my wife what's going on. Can you please tell her for me so she doesn't worry why I do this? Jorn's like, I've got this, man. Jorn hops on a horse, or more likely takes a carriage, because Jorn's not a big fan of horse riding. <laughs> a lot of mentors aren't. Darsh is trying to get him into it. Dar he's teaching him. Darsh is the only of the group, the Minotaur, that loves horses. Um, but Jorn is going off to tell Rokar and Sasha what's happened. And more importantly, Jorn knows about the dream. He's trusted with that. He wants him to know about, you need to tell Sasha and Rokar, did they have any dreams? They're my family. Did my nephew and niece have any problems? You know, Lyra is his wife, Sasha and Rokar, they're a couple of the kids. Also, I need you to tell Lyra, of course, my thing, because she's pregnant. Is she having dreams while pregnant? If I got a dream and punch somebody, I'm going to do it, is Darcy's thought. Uh, Draven Crow Zero, just want to stop by and one compliment you on your name. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Draven Crow. That's what, the crow is where I got mine from. Very much so. Uh, thank you so much for your Minecraft Sky Factory 4 tutorials. Well, you are very welcome, Draven Crow Zero. I am very glad that they were helpful. And I applaud your name as well. Good choice. Silesius popped in just to say hi. Going to go watch episode 17. Silesius is watching through the older episodes and catching up. Well, thank you for popping by. Let me know what you think. Enjoy 17. You're almost halfway there. <laughs> halfway here, if you will. Um... So Darsh, not taking a horse, because the only other Minotaur in this town that could ride a horse as well as Darsh, well, there's probably others, but of the immediate group, is Taboric. And when he comes walking off the ship, with his half-metal arm, and his robes and such, and, uh, you know what I mean? The dude is, is a big Minotaur, and he's dressed regally, very much so. Oh, you're probably he's uh, very regal, but he definitely has a different feel about him in the way that he talks. Much like Darsh has spent a lot of time living among humans and his friends, Darsh was still raised around Minotaurs. Tabork, not as much. He Tabork's older. He's about the age of Garrick at this point. He's probably in his 40s or so. Maybe a little younger than Garrick. But he's been through a lot with Firemoon. He's traveled and allied with him for a very long time. So 
he, uh, he's been with humans even longer than Darsh has. Um, and I want to talk about the metal arm. So during this situation, they ask about that. Because when he first met Tabork, he was missing an arm just below the elbow, right here. It was his left arm. He's right-handed. He did not lose his sword arm. But he lost his left arm. So the left arm is now a metal arm. And he can move his joint just like normal. And even though there's no joints, it's smooth like a fist. He can open it and close it a little bit. It's magical. He can open it and grasp a weapon or a shield. He's not doing finger movements. He's not opening locks or eating a sandwich. You know, I mean, it's one of those things where he can move it and then grab something. It's designed to do that. He can, you know, and it's not like he's reaching down and picking something up. He opens his hand, he puts something in it, and it closes. The upside is, it is not going to let go of that thing. At all. And the, it doesn't come off. It is merged to him. Oddly enough, Merch World. Uh, it is literally part of the magic is it became part of his arm. You'd have to cut it off to get it off. But again, he can spin it like this. Any way you could spin and at the elbow, you can do. And he can open it and close it enough to put something in it. So he can take another weapon and he can swing a weapon. He's not as fast and as agile as he is with his regular hand. But it's also a metal one. He punches you with that. It's going to hurt. He does not need a gauntlet. He has got steel knuckles. Big steel knuckles. But it's almost always in a fist unless he's opening it to put something in it. And he rarely does unless he has to. You know, if a shield is more commonly what he would use. While he dual-wielded weapons more often when he was younger, he also, now it's better to put a shield in there and he can just use that arm to kind of block. Um, if he needs something at all. Most of the time he just uses his one hand and punch you with this hand or bunk you on the head kind of thing. Because it's really, really hard. So they learn about that on the way. It was created by their friend, the Dwarven Smith, who's also a cleric of war, oddly enough, Coram, the god of war, who's a friend of Firemoon and been chilling with them for many years and part of that group. Um, very often a cleric will make a magic artifact. Now when I say a cleric, very often I should take that back. A high-level cleric very often will shoot for the goal of making an artifact. If they're lucky, they make one. For somebody to make two, sometimes if you're making a set, like I'm making a magical knife and fork, you know, set, that kind of thing happen, or a bowl and a cup kind of thing, and they're magical and they go together. Um, but if you make a magical staff, you're probably not making three or four. You can make magical staffs all day long, but an artifact, something that powerful and that rare, a cleric can only hope to usually make one of those in their lives. Because the god of your choice, of your prank, literally has to reach down inside of you and grant the magic to create this artifact. They're normally not going to do that twice. Uh, this dwarf friend of, uh, made this arm for him. That was what he wanted to create. He wanted to give that back to him. Um, and Tabork was very flattered by that. Because his friend was always a good smith. You know, he's always, he's always making stuff and weapons and things when needed and such. Um, but to use that one opportunity to make something specifically for him is very flattering. And Tabork uh, always endeavors to, to stay worthy of that kind of gift thing. Um, and hearing that story, Garrick loves Tabork even more. That's awesome. That was made by one of my guys. He's a dwarf, but that's still cool. Dwarves are next to Minotaur. Dwarves are the next coolest race. If a Minotaur is going to accept another race... It's usually either going to be an ogre, an orc, or a dwarf, depending on how that, that minotaur flies. 
But he's very impressed with the craftsmanship on it as well. Because it is, it literally isn't just completely smooth. Like, it is smooth, but it looks realistic. You know what I mean? Like the, the vein lines and such, the kind of shape you'd expect to see. It has a bit of a texture that from a distance, it almost could look like a minotaur's fur. It's not perfectly smooth. It's really smooth you get up close, but from a distance, it kind of has that texture. But it is bright-ass, shiny seal. Like, it is, there's no hiding the color of that. Unless you put a glove over it, I guess he could. But he doesn't bother with that. So now this guy is riding with Darsh to see the Emperor. And when Darsh says, yes, me and Ambassador Taboric, people are like, oh, let's get that done. So he's taken up there very, very quickly. Um, Darsh, knowing the protocols of court, before beginning to tell the story, fully introduces Taboric. The Emperor knows who Taboric is. He knows who Firemoon is. There have been discussions via, you know, because they're all part of the Southern Kingdom, so technically they're all entreated together. Um, but he's never met Tabork, although Darsh has spoken of him highly. And Darsh, his word carries a bunch of weight uh, with the men. So he's very honored to meet him. And to be honest, uh, one of the first Minotaurs to be the size of the Emperor. And he's actually a smidge bigger. Tabork was always a big for a Minotaur, too. He just rolled it. We rolled his size and he got big. But Tabork is a big dude. And a little impressive. Uh, but his calm demeanor, his very professionalism, uh, and that type of stuff, he, he speaks with a, a regal voice and authority um, and makes it quite clear that uh, he is there as the voice of Ray Firemoon, empowered as an ambassador uh, to do anything in the Kingdom of Firemoon's name should he need to. Whether it be trade, treat, things like that. He, he's come here personally to see if any of his family may be here. And the Emperor, uh, of course, offers to help in that regard. If you get me some names of your family, because uh, they don't always have the same last name, right? you got cousins and such with different last names. Get me the names of people. I will send out and we'll see if we can find anyone on the three islands that make up Kronayar, if anyone is a relation to you. Um, and invites him to stay here. And he declines, he goes, or he accepts that, he goes, yes, I would love that, um, but I've already accepted to stay with friend Darsh. And they're totally understandable. Not a slight at all. Darsh is an ally of his, it's understandable. Emperor doesn't care about that silly stuff. The Emperor does care about the information that Darsh gives him. Pirates are in the seas. They've attacked human ships. A Minotaur ship got involved, coming to a human's aid. A couple years ago, that would have never happened, right? Darsh is a big reason why that does now. And the fact that the Minotaurs didn't hesitate and rushed in to help someone they considered an ally, the Emperor is happy to hear that. That's a good sign of what he's trying to build here. He knows that the only future in merged worlds for the Minotaur is to be able to be on friendly terms and trade with the other races. Which, Darsh is a huge chunk. He's still the only person who can trade with the Elves and the Dwarves. He literally has a monopoly on those two races' worth of materials right now. Um... In the future, that will probably change. But, you know, for right now, anyways, Darsh is too linked to two races that they really want their goods. So, Taboric also offers the opportunity of other goods and such, even though they're quite far away. Not as much, but to know that there's a warrior king like Rafe out there who, relatively world famous at this point. Not so much for the him and his brother causing Merged World, but him saving Merged World, being a part of that. Uh, so, Taboric is there, and he's saying, he's hanging out, saying, going to talk and such, they're going to help with that, but Taboric, um, Darsh says, hey, I'm going back out there, like, I can't, you needed to know about this, 
You need to have, so that way you can build defenses around here because they may come after Kronar's ships next. Of course, he's not an Indian. He goes, which of course they'd be fools to do. And the Emperor's like, well, of course, but they could be fools. So we have to be prepared. The Emperor's like, I agree. Thank you for these words. I appreciate that. Darsha's like, the Chimera, we're setting out again tomorrow. Day to stock up. We're stocking up extra heavy because I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. And we are going out there and we're going to find these bastards and I'm going to sink them. He goes, they've attacked my island. They've attacked my allies. Hell, they attacked my ships. He goes, I'm going to find them and I'm going to sink them. I'm taking them out. And the emperor's like, golden ticket. You've got it. You have, he goes, in this, he goes, you are hunting, that at this point are technically in Darsh's waters, not even Kroniar. But Darsh is also a noble of Kroniar. And so the emperor goes, I will have it written out as a decree. Before you leave tomorrow, it is decreed that should you find pirates or, or things of that nature, you have my permission to act in Kroniar's best interest, a.k.a. kill them. If they're Minotaur pirates, you can kill them. You know, if that's what it keeps, because these we don't take prisoners in Minotaurs, you know. They're enemies, they're hurting us, we're going to kill them. That's what we're going to do. We're going to find them, we're going to sink them, maybe take some of their stuff, but then we're going to kill them. Or kill them and then take their stuff. In one of those two orders. Darsh is hoping for that, he thanks the Emperor. He says, I'm going to go home, of course, first, because i got to talk to my wife and let her know what's going on. Uh, because the Emperor, one of the few people that knows Lyra, is pregnant. She is his cousin, after all. That information came to the Emperor. Emperor takes him aside after me. He goes, by the way, congratulations. That's awesome. Because <laughs> Darsh didn't have a chance to talk about that with him. But Lyra has spoken, has literally come herself and spoken to them at this point. And he's like, uh, anything you need. If you think you need more protection for her, you need anything. If you need clear, you let me know. She's still a member of the Empire royal family, technically. Um, and you are her husband. So anything you guys need in that regard, you let me know. And he goes, I've, he goes, I'm already, I goes, I've already reached out to the woman who birthed, you know, that, the, not his wife, but the woman who was there for the birthing, the doctor, the clerics and such, that helped birth his own children. He goes, I've already made arrangements. She's basically on call for the next six and a half months, because that's where we're looking at time-wise. Uh, she'll be checking in regularly. She's going to do that. She's going to be there to take care of it. She's well-known. She's phenomenal. She's my, I, the woman helped bring me into this world and she's brought my children in. She's there for you. Darsh's like, that's cool. Because that's not something I really wanted to look into. I don't really have time for that kind of stuff. She's going to let Lyra do it. But so yeah, if you want to do that, that would be awesome. Yes and thank yous, hellos and please. Darsh and Tabork leave the court and head back to his house. They get there, introduce them to everyone. None of them have met them, even Rokar. Right? No one has met them before. Rokar is on the heel. Or is on the men. He's fine now. He's received healing over the last few days. He's up and ready to go. Sasha would like him to take a rest, but he's a mentor. That's not going to happen. So he's going to be going with Darsh. He's like, I'm ready to jump back in. Darsh is like, excellent. I want to have you back. Because I'm going to need every sword and axe at hand. Because I don't know how many ships we're going to be dealing with. Uh, but we're going to sink them. Everybody's like, yeah, we're going to sink them. That's what we're going to do. I mean, that's it's a consensus. We're going to find them, we're going to destroy them, we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, Dorham already knew about this. Dorham's already, from the second they landed, Dorham was getting the ship loaded. Because Dorham, this is Dorham's family as well. Dorham is completely loyal to Darsh at this point. You know, the ships, all of that. While he's becoming the 
basically the captain of the Chimera whenever Darsh is not there, or Darsh is there and doesn't feel like being captain. You know, he has rank. Uh, even in the Minotaur, people know, in the Kroniar, he's looked at with respect because he's the captain of one now, one of the most powerful ships uh, in the available Navy, although he's not technically part of the Navy. And he's very experienced, and he's shown that. So, Dorm's like, I'm on this. We're, we're going to take care of this. And Darstopia is his home. While he helps with Kronair and all that, this is the first place that he, he has a small house there for when they're there. Because sometimes they'll go there and stay there for days, if not weeks. You know, uh, The goal is Darsh eventually wants to move there permanently once it's fully built up and defensible. Which, obviously, is, obviously he's learned it's not yet. But he's always wanted to move that and make that his base of operations while still having land here for when he needs it. So they go back. He reports in with Lyra. They talk to everybody. Rokar's chipping in. Lyra's doing okay. She's feeling better. She's been doing better the last few days. Now that she knows what was wrong, not technically wrong, but you know, she knows what's going on. Uh, she's not as worried about it. She feels better. Sasha is aware and, and the family as a group know, but they're not making it very public yet. Um, Darsh's nephew and niece uh, get a kick out of uh, Tabork's arm. He's lifting them up with it, and they're hanging on to it. And they're getting a kick out of that. But Tabork, of course, they all know Rokar and Lyra and Sasha know about Tabork. They all know Darsh's stories and such that he's told. So he just comes in, has a meal, and they have a relatively good evening while making plans for the next day. Now, it took several days to get there. And then he's going to get back on the ship after the next 24 hours. And they're heading back out again. And it doesn't, he doesn't know how long it's going to take to find these pirates. But he's going in the direction that both times when the pirates have fled, they've both gone north. Uh, not north of Darstopia and north of Kroniar, but north of the area in between. That's where they're going to start looking. I breeze over that because the amount of time he's spending on a boat going from place to place, his story has the least amount of stuff going on in it because big chunks of his seven days are just him on a boat. So I, that's all there really is to touch upon in this situation. And then he gets back on the boat the next day. And they go, and Tabork is not going with him. Tabork is staying here. He's waiting to hear from the Emperor. He's going to meet with the Emperor. He appreciates that. He's going to be staying at, Lyra, at his house with Lyra. Uh, but he will not be accompanying Darsh on this trip. So there's that. Now we're going to jump over to Mercy. If you remember... Mercy had stopped by that mine and then made her way to the border where she was talking about trying to build a bigger like fort garrison type there, a better defense on the border of what they consider serenity. At the same time, she had learned that it appears Oromon is building one as well. A good distance away, because again, if you're looking at Star Trek terms, there's a neutral zone. There's a big chunk of land between Oromon and Serenity that neither one technically claims. They each have a border that they know of, and there's a space in between. So there's no border clashes regularly. It would take probably a day to cross that. You know, a day or two. I mean, it's not something like you're just going to take an hour and run across and hit somebody. It takes a while, and both of them, you're sure, have their spies and stuff watching for that type of a thing. But then when she woke up from the dream, she heard that there's something had happened at the mine. They don't know what, but there's been injuries, possibly deaths, and uh, the head miner dude has asked her to return and give help. Mercy, her father, the knights of the light that are with him, um, 
as well as the one knight that she has with her, which I forget his name. Oh, here it is. The one knight that she has with her is... Crap. Oh, Seth. Seth is the one that's with her. The one I said is the strategy guy. The one who's overseeing the border building and such. He's designing the keeps himself where it should be strategically. That's their guy. Uh, he is the only Knight of Serenity that she has with him, but she has a bunch of warriors of Serenity, of the military, and a chunk of the Knights of the Light and her father, and so now they're roll, rolling down to that. Takes him a day or two, day and a half to get back. There's some space in there, a day or two to get back. But she eventually arrives. She managed, They have to stop and get rest occasionally, so she's a bit more rested up when she gets there. Mercy's used to hard riding more than anyone else. And when Darsh is traveling, he's usually on a boat in a bed, you know? Dandy and Michael, they, they're probably second there. Artemis spends most of her time in the temple. But Mercy is constantly traveling around, guarding and protecting and fighting wolves and orcs and goblins and things that threaten Serenity. So she spends a lot of time out and about. She's used to getting sleep on the side of the road more than the rest of them are at this point. So she makes her way there and she heads to the mine. So when she arrives, remember, Aguar is the guy that was there. Um, who he himself, she can see, has some injuries. Uh, his arm is up in a sling. There's some blood. He's got a little thing around his head. Got a little blood up in there. Um, and of course, he looks very relieved at them coming in. And you see the camp is... Like, people are all just standing around. Way more than she saw last time. Why? Because none of them are in the mine. She arrives uh, early morning at this point. They get up. A few more hours, they get there. She asks what happened. And he says they. he doesn't quite know. He only knows this, that while mining, they found something. It was odd. It was almost like part of a pillar, deep underground. Not super deep. They're not dwarf deep, but they're mining. Something that was obviously made by man-made, dwarf, human elf, made by somebody. And it had etchings and such on it. And the men found it and started to clear around it and came across a flat thing that clearly looked more like a wall. It was strange. It wasn't flat. It was kind of crooked. You know, like the pillars kind of going on an angle kind of thing. Like someone picked up a room and stood it sideways and shoved it into the ground and covered it in dirt. That's not what happened. But for physical, like you had a, a lunchbox and you set it down in the ground, dug a hole, put it crooked, and then poured dirt over it kind of thing. So, of course, they came to tell him. He came down to oversee what this was because they're like, ooh, archaeology. <laughs> Maybe there's something cool in there. He gave permission to go ahead and bust the wall open. That was a bad decision. He was back in the back because they were breaking it open and they're not using dynamite, but he was in the back in case they were collapsing and such. And almost immediately, as soon as they busted the wall, it shattered more than it should have. Like they were banging on it, it was heavy stone. But once they finally cracked it, what would be a hole, the wall itself crumbled almost like in that perfect square and that whole chunk of wall crumbled. At least that's what he heard. He didn't get close enough to see that part because as soon as that crumbled, there was a shock wave that knocked everybody off their feet. Everybody had a couple seconds of vertigo. And then he began to hear the screams. Something or things was in the tunnel and he heard people just being torn apart. 
He immediately screamed for everyone to get out. And, you know, captain with his ship, he refused to leave until he could get as many people out as he could. And in the darkness, something came out, something very dark, and he couldn't, it's dark, it's, they're not all carrying torches at this situation. They're all fleeing kind of thing. Uh, something human-sized came out, and he just felt something sharp rake across his head, and then another thing, like, stab him in the arm, and then he was being pulled out by several of his foremen and miners and such. Echoes of screams. Everyone fled the mines. Even the other parts of the mines where there were no problems. He called everybody out. Because he doesn't know how widespread that is. And no one's gone back in since. But nothing's come out. Including some of the missing miners. But nothing's come out day or night. Whatever it is, they can only feel it's still down there. It, they, them. No idea. Never quite saw it. So no one's twelve. They have they have at this point twelve injured men, seven missing. Uh, it's the east wing of the mine. Um, had found that, um, and like I said, he was they were on the way down there when that happened. So they were slightly larger than the average man, and they seemed seemed to have like a black gray shape about them. But again, it was dark. It was hard to tell. But they seemed dark. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I could have people in there still injured, but I can't send people in. I don't know what's in there. Mercy's like, it's good that you called. We're going to take care of this. <clears throat> so she gets with Edward and she gets with Seth. He's like, okay, we're going to have to go in there, obviously. We don't know what it is. We're going to have to go in there. Mercy has her bonk stick, which is quite magical. Edward's sword is a... Magical sword as well. Not super magical, but he's got some plus. He's a third-ranked knight of thousands of knights. He's probably got a pretty good sword. Uh, Seth has a um, magical weapon as well. I forget what Seth wields. Let me grab what Seth wields. Uh, let me see. Seth, 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 Seth. Ah, Seth uses almost like a poleaxe. He's got a long axe with the... Or long pole, but with the smaller axe on the end. It's a two-handed weapon. Uh, but he also has a sword, and he can use a shield, because obviously, crawling around in mines, you don't want a big, long weapon. Uh, but in, in, on the field of battle, he's just cleaving people. So he, he leaves that up there, he gets his sword and shield, they prepare to go in. They want to go in now, before it takes too long, in case there is survivors. So Mercy, Edward, Seth, and many of the warriors of Serenity are going to in. Edward offers the Knights of the Light as well. But Mercy's like, as much as I appreciate that, I feel that going into this unknown situation here, this is the type of danger that my men have signed up for. I know you guys are cool with it. I'm not saying I don't trust them, but I'm going to go in with my men. He's like, I respect that, but I'd like to come along. She's like, that's totally cool. Aguar's like, I'm not going. And they're like, we don't want you to. <laughs> you're injured, and you're not a warrior at this point. You're a businessman. So they start making their way down to the mines. Now, mind you, it's been a day and a half, almost two days since the dream for her as well, right? And they start making their way down. They're very, very slow. Now, they don't have a mage. There's a clear, there's a, a couple minor clerics that live in the thing, but they're very low level. Taking them in, it's like taking in a squishy. We're not taking you into we don't know what it is. So they're going in there without any real magical assistance. 
Mercy doesn't normally do that. She's not a big fan of it, but, you know, you do what you got to do. So Mercy makes her way in. And they're, they could travel for a while. And they start to come across parts of bodies. Um, they got plenty of torches. They can see pretty well down there. Uh, they're definitely using a lot of light to help in this situation. They didn't have light before the last time whatever was attacked. Uh, you can see the gnaw marks on bones and arms and meat that's been left inside. Whatever is down here has been chewing on the miners. It's been a couple days. There's not a lot of faith any of them are probably left. They hear no signs, no screams, no cries for help. This angers Mercy, of course, because she does not want her people of Serenity to be having uh, problems with being chewed on. So she's going to move forward. And they make their way down the mines. Luckily, Aguar gives them very, very clear directions on how to get down there. Even though it's a mine, it's pretty easy to traverse. And they're almost to the area on the map. The, the minor map that they're given of where this could be when they are attacked. The things that attack them are almost a hodgepodge of a couple different monsters. Imagine a troll, smaller than a troll, but bigger than a human. Trolls are usually pretty big. They're like minotaur or even bigger than minotaurs. Trolls are large. They usually have long, thin fingers that are sharp. They're greasy, long noses. Um grayish, different trolls have different colors. But these trolls, like things, well, they have that appearance, their skin is black. And it's very smooth. And that's an oddity. Mercy's fought trolls before. She knows about trolls. She makes it a point to know about anything that could be a threat in Serenity. They have very scaly, leathery-type skin, which is tough, and it's hard to break through. And most trolls, you've got to use fire or acid to kill them. But these things that attack... Their skin is not as tough. They're able to puncture them pretty well. They just don't seem to care. And they don't seem to bleed. And they're much faster. Now, they don't seem to be moving in any strategy. They don't have any weapons, per se. And they're not casting any spells. They're attacking en masse. And there are about nine of them. Um... For the amount of people Mercy bought, that's not a problem. In a tunnel that you can only go two to three people wide, it becomes a problem. Mercy, Seth, and Edward are up front. You know, they're going to lead their way in here. They're not going to put their men in front of them, although sometimes you send scouts. In this situation, they went in first. So they end up taking a large part of the battle. Luckily, Mercy's not a fool. And many of the people that are with her have crossbows. You don't bring bows into this situation. But crossbows are okay. And they're knocked and the people behind them are ready for that. And while battle's going on, there are times that Mercy will literally call out a word and then they drop or duck or get out of the way and a barrage of bolts go over their head. They stand up and keep attacking. It's a strategy that Mercy came up with. The second row are, are shooters. Drop down into a defensive position, usually using a shield or something to protect you. You're not opening yourself up to a hit. But then a bunch of bolts come up, stand up, and attack them while they're recovering from that. Something that Mercy does in tight quarters in certain fights that she's done. And usually it works okay for her. The fight is hard, though. Um, because, again, they have to do serious damage to these things before they finally fall over dead. Uh, but they don't bleed, and they, they don't seem to be feeling any pain. They literally have to be hacked and have an arm cut off and be like beheaded and all this kind of stuff. 
in order for them to finally stop attacking. And it takes a while to cleave them apart. And at times, Mercy or different people will step back and a couple more fresh people will step in and take their place because her people are no slouches. Her soldiers are trained. They're ready for this. But Mercy does the large scheme of the bonking. And it's really the first time her father's got to see her in combat. And I'll be honest, later on, comments how impressed he was. Um, but as soon as they finally squished them and crushed them down, Mercy's like, light them up. Torches are set to them. And they don't burn well. Like, they burn like you'd expect something to burn. But trolls, which are not resistant to fire, it's the only way to keep them from regenerating, normally burst into flame. Trolls do not like fire. But these things, it's like trying to burn... Burn something that's already been burnt. If that makes sense. Right? Say you've got a, an old box or something, or a can, and you throw it in a fire. And it shrivels up a bit and it becomes a chunk. Throw it back in the fire. It doesn't change much after that. It's not really going to burn too much. All the burnable stuff has been sucked out of it. So fire doesn't seem to be affecting this. So Mercy starts having them cut up. She leaves people there to start cutting them up and keeping the parts separate. If it is a troll, the parts can come back together or start growing new parts. First sign of that, they are to take them outside. And they're starting to do that anyways. Because some trolls also have problems with sunlight. So chop them up, get them out of here. Get them into the sunlight. Nothing came out of the cave. Maybe that's part of the issue. Well, a chunk of her force are doing that. And they do that some of the Knights of Light come down and help with that. Mercy, her father, and Seth, and several of the other move into this chamber. Because what else is in there, right? Technically, whatever they find in there is Aguars. It's his land. But they don't want him coming down here and running into more problems or issues, right? He's an ally. So they decide they're going to go in and check it out. So the room itself is a man-made chamber. Right? It is slightly crooked, so the floor is kind of on an angle a little bit. Not too bad. A little bit of a slant. You know, if you set something on it, it would roll. But you could stand on it without falling over. It's not super steep. I'll give you an example. Um... There's what appears to be a big stone block with, ready for it? You love it, don't you? Sarcophagus of some kind on top. Doesn't look Egyptian. It does look like it is shaped like some kind of Nordic warrior, if you will. But it, it's, it's very well detailed. But it's, it's obviously a, a stone sarcophagus. It's not a real body they're seeing. It's, just, it's bigger than a person, and it's built into the bottom. And it doesn't have arms where the arms would be on front crossed. It's just a big shield carved into it. Although the shield has no symbol on it or anything at all. It's just a smooth shield. What they see after that is that there are things that were here. So there's some things that were probably tall candelabra where there was candles and such on it, they've fallen over at this point because it is on a slant of that much, right? There were probably some baskets and chests and maybe cloth, things you'd find in a burial chamber that are basically dust or just little residue at this point because it's very, very old. And the second you open up a chamber like this and the oxygen goes in, things will just disappear. I learned about that while I was in China. They have to be very careful when they open up the old tombs and such, in Egypt as well, because when air comes in, anything that's cloth or leather will literally just disintegrate. So they got to be now, and they lost a lot of stuff like that in the early days. Now they're a lot more technical. 
you know, sending in lasers and cameras and stuff and trying to be better with it. Some things can't be helped. Very cool, though. Um, so there's that type of thing. when the cave, But that wall literally is, there's rubble there, but the whole square wall fell apart. The walls are all the same length. It's a big square chamber. The pillars are at each corner. Now, now that they're inside, they can see it's a round room and the walls are in between them. The pillars do have etchings on them, but the walls are smooth. The base of the pedestal that the sarcophagus is on, because they're checking it out, they're being careful, they're approaching it careful. There's no rogue here to check for traps, there's no major cleric to check for magic, so they're just trying to be careful. There are symbols that none of them recognize uh, written along the this thing, but not on the sarcophagus itself. What I want to stress here is that the room has a feel about it, an aesthetic. So this room looks like, okay, this is maybe an Egyptian one. This room looks like this. And sitting on this thing in the middle is a sarcophagus that does not meet the same type of style. It's not made of... Everything else is made out of the same type of stone. The altar thing is a stone. The sarcophagus on top of it is actually looks a little bit too big for the altar. Like it was brought into a room that already existed and set there. It looks out of place. A smaller sarcophagus of different types of material, metal or of the same type of stone you'd see, would maybe blend in better. But this is a lighter stone, more gray, more of a surface stone where the walls are more of a reddish-orange tint of stone, almost yellow in spots. Um, so it does not look like, originally, you would say the sarcophagus is part of this room, but clearly it is. There's no other way in, and that's the thing. There are no doors. There are no doors to this room. There's nothing that would believe that this room was ever entered or exited. It was built with the walls around it, and they sealed it up with no intention of coming back in again. So in these situations, of course, what you do is you send for a wizard or a cleric and have them come in and check things before you touch stuff. Smart people would do. Mercy decided to check it out herself. I love Mercy. Mercy's a rang buck. She's a character, and she's not known uh, for her patience sometimes. So waiting several days for mages to come back from Serenity to get here, or clerics or whatever, she decides she's going to investigate the room herself. Only her father and Seth are allowed in there. She asks them to stay out, but they're like, no, we're coming in too. And they're like, she's like, okay, stand back. And I have them. She's like, okay. So she goes in, she's walking around the altar and things. She's looking for it. Dandy, <laughs> Gilgamesh. <coughs> Dandy has taught her, over time, things to look for. She can't find and remove traps like Dandy can, but she can look for some of the obvious stuff. Are there lines where the stone meets the stone that looks like something could move there? You know? Like it just sink in or lift up. Pressure plates. Things like strings, wires. The more basic stuff. She doesn't see anything of that nature. She knows about tombs being cursed or trapped in things. But, you know, damn it, this is on her land. And she, this is somebody's mind. She wants to make sure this is not a threat. Dude wants to get back to work. And she needs that stone. She needs this mine up and running. Soon. Hello, Patches. Hello, kitty. So, she pokes around a little bit <laughs> with, her, with her morning star to see if it, anything happens. The thing's super heavy. It's, it's big. It's, it's way bigger than a dude should be, right? 
And she's poking at it, nothing happens. Starts tapping it on top. And the, Seth and her father in the back like, what is she doing? Seth, who's the strategist, is like, this is not good strategy. She's like, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm good at this. I've, I've done this before. I've seen Dandy do this. I got this. It turns out Mercy did not got this. <laughs> so, let me get to this spot here. <laughs> Mercy's now back around. She's circled it. She's looked. There's no etchings in the ground, like spell stuff she's looking for. The etchings and such in the base, to her, look more like writing than magic. Again, she's not a magic user. She's not good at that. But you're around enough magic users, you can maybe recognize some of the stuff. This looks more like picture-style drawings, kind of, but the pictures don't make any sense. They're not pictures of anything she'd recognize, like stars and moons and this and that, and a stick here and a tree there, but n nothing that makes sense. I'm sorry, Kitty, let me move that. But she starts hitting it a little bit harder. <laughs> Poking it in different areas and starts hitting the thing underneath and tapping it on top to see if there's something inside. She thinks something's going to come out and fight her. That's what she's trying to get it to come out. I knew this when we were playing it. She thinks, okay, there's some mummy in here or something and I'm going to have to fight it. And she's trying to think of what I'm doing. And so she's bonking on it and such. And she's trying to get whatever it is to throw it off and come out and fight her, right? Like a vampire or a ghost or a whatever. That is not what I had going on in here. So she's come back around. She's on the side of her father. Uh, I should say this thing is not uh, is directly in the middle. It's in the middle of this room. The the thing is. Um, and when they came in the door, the wall they came in, they're looking at it lengthwise, right? So they're not coming in at the feet or head end of this. They're at the lengthwise when they walk in this room. They're looking at it length. And it's really heavy. The fact that it's tilted, it's clearly not going to slide off. Way too heavy for that. Mercy can look at this and see this thing's huge and it's stone. You know, it would take 20, 30 dudes or a darsh in the hope of pie to get this off of this. You know what I mean? Um, this is not something that's going to be lifted easy. So we're like, all right, well. She takes the thing and she tries to push it some. She's just poking and beating this thing with it. It's hilarious. Nothing happens. She's like, this thing can't be trapped. I've smacked it everywhere. Whatever's inside is not coming out. So she sets her morning star down and she decides she's going to try to push on it. So she puts her hands on it to push. This is the first time she's touched it with herself. Something living. Everything else, she's been poking it with a weapon and things. The second her hands touch the sarcophagus, another huge shock wave blasts out and is felt not by everyone in the room and the people outside. It's felt on the surface and people in a quarter mile radius get that vertigo shockwave feeling. That's what everybody out there feels. People closer to it, the knights in the hallway and the fire, they're knocked off their feet. Mercy is propelled into the air backwards with enough force that not only does it knock her unconscious, she literally cracks the wall. Her armor cracks it, and her armor, which is no slouch's armor, she's not wearing her magical armor, but she's wearing official serenity armor, 
cracks the metal. She's injured from this, dislocates a shoulder. They have to pop it back in before she wakes up. Uh, but she literally is like, it's like that fast. She's just against the wall. Everybody else stands up, the dust is clearing, and she's crumpled at the base of this wall. Nothing's moving. They're not worried about that. They're worried about Mercy. They go over there. Mercy has some healing potions on her. She always carries a few. You always make sure they've got that when she doesn't have Artemis around. Give her some healing potions. All the knights have at least one of Knights of Serenity have one or two. They give her some of that stuff. They manage to get her up. They pop her shoulder back in. She's awake for that, by the way. Uh, doesn't feel good. She has to take her armor off. The chest piece is cracked in the back all the way around the front. She just has, they have to literally pry it off her because it's dented in around her. It's a little hard to breathe. She doesn't have that hard time breathing in armor uh, since she became an old lady in the Michael story, but that's in the past. Jim and I are dying laughing. Oh yeah, Mercy was waiting for somebody to touch that thing. <laughs> Dizzy, but finally getting up. The other, everybody's poking her heads in. It's like, everybody okay? She's like, stay out. Nobody else come in. Don't touch anything with your hands or anything. We're going to run a little bit long today. I apologize. Don't touch anything. After a few moments of watching and waiting, the dust is settling because there's dust in the wall and the room's dusty and stuff. Clears out. They're in a torch in a dusty room, right? There's not, they don't have torches on the wall. It's just the torches that they're holding. And she had one on the ground next to her over there. It's it's against the corner now. It was knocked off by the shockwave and blown out. They have, and their torches were blown out. They have to light some new ones. She proceeds to move a little bit closer to it again. And they're like, you sure you don't want to call a wizard? She's like, I'm not going to touch anything this time. But I got to see what I did. And she moves closer to it. And as she gets closer and the dust settles, she sees the lid of the sarcophagus has shattered or cracked in half and literally come off both sides. Not head and foot like a regular coffin we'd know, but cracked this way and then fallen outside and has fallen to the ground outside. And now whatever it is, is open. The rest of it, the bottom of the sarcophagus, the thing holding it, nothing was damaged by the shockwave. The only damage to the place was from her body. Uh, but the sarcophagus has cracked. And it's, it's not a clean cut. It's, it's a crack and it's shrapnel. And it's mostly two pieces, though. And it's almost like something pushed it from inside. Because that's where the shockwave came from. Right? She gets closer. And as she starts to get closer, in the dust, she sees that there's a bit of a glow coming from within the sarcophagus. Hey, hey, don't mess with stuff. Mercy investigates. You'd think she'd learn by now, right? But not so much. She investigates. And inside the sarcophagus might have once been a body. There's dust and almost what you'd think of flat pieces. What could what may almost look like a little piece of leather that might have been metal at one point. When the sarcophagus opened, the air got in and everything inside dissipated. There's no body, there's no mummy, there's no monster in there. But sitting around the chest area is a 
something. And it's glowing and looking at it. Mercy's, that's not normal. She calls to her father and Seth. Have you ever seen anything like this? And they look inside and they're like, not exactly no. But I don't want to touch it. Seth goes, yeah, I think we're going to need the mages for this. So let's talk about Dandy now. So while this was going on, Dandy's back in the mining town, right? Whispering Hills. Now we're not going to talk much about Dandy. Mostly we're going to handle Dandy tomorrow. We're going to give just a snippet of Dandy because I wanted to touch on her a little bit. She's a favorite of a lot of people. The next night, they've rested all day. Stayed in their room. Of everybody, they were in the best mode. Darsh could sleep on the boat too. Dandy and Michael, they rested. They were fine. He got some food brought up. He said she's feeling a bit under the weather today. Everybody's like, oh, it happens from day to day. No problem. And they rest. But the next night, they go back to their original plan. Dandy resets the trap. They're going to sneak out. She's like, you tell me if I had two hands on one side, right? He's like, you don't have two hands. And she's like, I'm just saying. You gotta tell me if this happens. Don't leave me hanging. Sets the traps where they need to. There's traps on the door. So if anybody tries to come into the room while they're gone... Uh, they won't necessarily be injured a whole lot, but they'll know it's happened. And they managed, I managed, they managed to pull one of the poles out of the thing, and they managed to squeeze out. They wait till like 1 o'clock in the morning, 1, 1.30, 1 1.35, and they managed to slide out there. Both of them very nimble. Michael's been learning from her. Uh, most of their armor and stuff they leave behind. They're wearing their uh, black undead hunting stuff now. The stuff that is a bit more meant to hide at dark times. Danny's regular clothes are very colorful, you know. Um, but darker clothing and such is what they use when they're hunting undead to not draw attention. And so they're climbing out on the roof and very easily make their way down. The streets are very quiet. I mentioned there's a curfew here, right? Bit of a curfew here as well. The town is very quiet. They don't even see any real guards walking around. There probably are some, but, you know, they're kind of stayed to the side of rounds and stuff. They've decided they want to check out the mayor's house. Because they felt the mayor was a little bit shifty. For some reason, Mr. Somebody Sinestro III. Sinestro III. Maybe not my best naming. Uh, they felt slightly uh, judgy about this guy. So they decide they want to go check his house. <clears throat> so they make their way there. They decide, because they've already checked it a couple times while watching, you know, just during the daytime walking by. There's a window, high, probably a bedroom, that very commonly is left open. I said it's nice weather here. Probably left open for air. There's no air conditioning, so you leave it open for a nice air. It's high up in the air. The average person couldn't get it up there. Dandy is not your average person. Dandy very easily manages to scale the wall and look inside the room. Checking the windows for traps, it appears to be an empty bedroom. Still dark inside. She's got a little bit of infravision. Remember, Michael doesn't. Michael has left Menandra in the room. He's hidden it best he could. But he didn't bring it. It's just too long and easy to see. When they're walking around town during the day, he doesn't have it either. 
It stayed up hidden in their room. So he's hidden it somewhere. It doesn't become a concern. But he did take great pains to hide it. She gets inside the room, checks it. There's no one inside. The bed appears to be empty. The bedroom door is closed. There's no one inside the room. Checks quickly for traps. Listens for sounds. No sounds of anything. Anybody here must be asleep. She ties a rope to something, a bedpost or something. Ties it out. Michael makes his way up. She's very proud of how good he does with the climbing. He's barely audible. To her, it might as well be blowing a trumpet. But she knows the regular person probably didn't hear it. And he makes it up in there as well. The room appears to be a child's room. And from the dolls and such that are in the room, it would appear that it probably belonged to a little girl. Although the bed is made, and it doesn't look like it's been slept in in a little while. The room is clean. They make their way to the door. It is locked. Dandy picks it without a problem. It's not trapped in any way, but it was locked. They open it. Dandy goes out first. Michael hangs inside. He's not as quiet as Dandy. He wants to give her a chance to look around. He trusts Dandy in this regard. Dandy starts looking around. Doesn't really hear anything. Starts looking around some of the rooms. Finds some storage rooms, a closet room. Maybe an old bedroom that would be a guest room. You can see it. It doesn't have any real personal effects in it. She begins to start making her way towards... Because the, the, the way the rooms are built, there's a common room in the middle. And the, the second layer goes around. So you can go all the way around and there's a stairs on one side on the opposite side that goes down. There's a double door across from her on the second story, which looking at the layout of the house, she would believe is probably a master bedroom. That may be where Sinestro is sleeping. She thinks that's where they're going to check out next. She begins to start sneaking her way around when suddenly she hears a noise from down in the common room. A door open. She freezes and listens quietly. She hears two sets of footsteps come into the room. She's able to carefully look down and she sees two men. One is the mayor. Right? One is Sinestro himself. And he's fully dressed. He's not in his PJs. This is once you wear at 1.30 in the morning, unless you're Michael and Dandy and you're sneaking around killing undead or trying to find out nasty mayors named Sinestro who are probably very sinister. He's dressed. There's another man there. She's having a bit of a hard time seeing who he is, but she's watching. They appear to be talking in hushed tones. She listens very quietly. She hears mention of the mine. One of them, she can't make out which one, says, We have to hurry. We can't be late. Everyone's like, Yeah, okay. She looks down and she sees that it is the mayor. And it is Vivek. Who's Vivek? Vivek's All Goods. Remember Vivek? Very friendly guy. A little weird. He appears to be picking up a couple things for the mayor. Possibly to help out. And the mayor heads out the front door. Vivek follows him, closing the door behind him. Danny waits a minute, makes sure there's nobody around, and then 
sneaks back to Michael. They go back to the window. And they're looking out the window carefully because they can see the path. And sure enough, the two men appear to be heading towards the mine, which isn't in operation at night. Odd this early in the morning. Danny and Michael decide they have to try and hurry. It might be best to follow them. Climbing back down, bringing the rope with them. Michael uses the rope, then Dandy climbs down naturally. They gather up their stuff, and they start hurrying. Now, there's a head start at this point. They had to get out of the house. They snuck out the best they could. She relocked the door to the bedroom, not leaving any clues. She's very sneaky that way. Sliding down the rope, Michael's at the bottom. She unties it, drops it down to him, and she climbs down the wall. And they hurry as much in shadows as they can towards the mine. The mine's on the outskirts of town a little bit, so... They don't have to go through all the town and the houses to do it. They're able to kind of skirt around the town uh, by climbing and crawling over a bit more rugged terrain. They might be able to catch up because they're taking the road, which kind of goes around and such. Uh, so they're coming, they're kind of coming up. They're going down and around to where the mine is on the outskirts of town. They're going to try to head them off. Michael and Dandy are hurrying, but trying to be quiet. Michael still has weapons with him, but he doesn't have Menandra. Because again, there's been no sense of undead anywhere in here. Oh, hey, OG, sorry to interrupt. My brother, who's been DMing since DNA First Edition, has been giving the opportunity to host a campaign that will be getting sponsored by Roll20. Well, I don't know if you'd be interested in joining as a player. I don't know what role sponsored by Roll20 is, but I'd be interested in talking about it. Yeah. Well, if you want to have him shoot me an email, uh, onlydravengaming uh, at gmail.com, have him shoot me a message or join our Discord. Uh, you go to onlydraven.com, my website. There's a link at the top. You can shoot me a direct message in there if you'd like. I'd be interested in hearing what it's about. I don't know much about that. Uh, I've been playing since late first, early second as well. So I'm not quite sure. I'm just learning fifth edition now. So, But yeah, I'd be interested to hear about it. I appreciate the thought. Thank you. So they're hurrying to try to meet up. And they believe they're making good time and most likely going to catch up when about that time. Something relatively large, maybe man-sized, regular man-sized, so big to Michael and Dandy, comes out of the shadows of the trees or the bushes, leaping unnaturally far. Its body contorting lengthily, surprising even Dandy because she heard nothing. But her instincts are enough to drop and dodge the thing as it goes over her head, quickly pulling out her daggers, because her hoop pack strapped to her back, pulls out her daggers that she wears in her belt. Michael, stepping back, pulls out his sword. They turn to face the humanoid creature there. Although, human a kind of humanoid. Well, it doesn't appear to be wearing clothes at all. Its black hair covers its whole body. Its hands end in sharp claws and talons. And its face, while almost the hint of humanoid, is much, much more clearly that of a panther. The thing rises up on two feet... And they see it has two daggers as well. Long, sharp, 
Chris blades. Chris blades are the spirally ones, the little wiggle ones. And it says, you shouldn't have come here. And it attacks. Then we're back to Mercy for a minute. And this is how we're going to end the day. Mercy sends for mages and clerics from Serenity. She tells Aguar what they found. She says that until they can make sure that whatever it is is safe to touch or find a way to get it out of here, it's best that he stays out of the mine. He's not happy about it, but he understands. They say that once they can verify the thing has wealth or whatever and it's not dangerous, they'll turn it over to him. He's like, no, you take it. He goes, I don't want it. I lost good men to this and what it's already done to you guys. I don't want it. If you can get it out of here and get it away from my mind and just get where I can get back to business, that's all I care about. Whatever that thing is, get it out of here. Mercy's like, okay. It'll be a few days. To have the mages from the mage tower come down and verify what it is or how we're going to get it out of here. And we'll look into it. It's during this conversation that a man on a horse comes running up the road from the direction of the border wall where they came. Mercy recognizes him as one of her warriors. She knows his name. I don't have one, but she recognizes it. And he comes, he, she sees him. He's coming from the, they just saw him yes, a couple days ago. And he comes up and quickly hops off his horse and he always drops to one knee and she hates that. Get up, what? Because I come with a message from the, I forget his name, but the guy who's running the border thing. My lady, an ambassador from the Empire of Oramon has come to the lands of Serenity and stands at the tower asking to meet with you or to be taken to you. He has with him two elites, which of course, as we all know, Oramonian elites are their badass fighters. Always come in pairs. Don't ever talk. And maybe a hundred warriors. Clearly not an attacking force. We've advised him that without permission he cannot access or cannot come into the lands of Serenity. He says that's fine and he is happy to wait for you at your convenience. This is the first person from Oramon to reach out to them since they fought Dagodin on the fields of Serenity a, year, a couple years ago? Three years ago at this point? This does not make Mercy happy. The last thing she needs is Oramon popping up. But what you gonna do? She says, return and tell them I'm on my way. He looks at her father and Seth and goes, looks like we're traveling again. They get their horses and get everyone together. Edgar helps get them some supplies. And before they even have a chance to rest from the injuries she just took, they're back on their horses racing back to the border to meet the representative from the Empire of Oramon, what he wants and why he wants to speak with Mercy. No information was given, only that he was sent to speak with her directly. And Mercy intends to make that meeting. And that is where we're going to end for the day. So, not everybody's days are completely synced up at this point, but we're covering a seven-day period. Recap. Darsh, on his way into the waters, looking for pirates, gonna squish him. Dandy, 
just got attacked by some panther-like humanoid in this town. That's kind of weird, because it talks and has weapons, but it's kind of naked. Artemis is going to have to chase after this le leather worker. Try to get to him. He's had a couple days head start. He very likely has made it to Moonbrook by now. What has he done there? They're going to have to take off and try to catch up to him. And then, of course, there's Mercy. Out to speak to the ambassador of the people that she just hates the most. Not all of Ormond. Most of them are innocent people. But boy, does she hate that emperor. And uh, this will be the first time she's spoken to one of his representatives, you know, since technically she was in his gladiatorial arenas as a slave. And we're getting very close to another seventh night. All right, so that's where we're going to leave that for today. We got four different story, technically five storylines going. We have all four of them with their individual and whatever this dream sequence thing is. But we'll be back to talk about that next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern uh, for another two to three hour segment of Merged Worlds. I would like to thank you all very much for coming by my story today and give me the chance to share my tale with you. If you had a good time or you like me a little bit, whether you're watching this today or 10 years down the road, click like if you don't mind. But if you're new here, be sure to hit subscribe so you can come back and hang out with us all the time. If you'd like more information on uh, Merged Worlds, um, I do use the Hero Forge website to digitally paint and create miniatures for a lot of these characters. Uh, so you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a Characters button at the top. Click on that. And you can see what a whole bunch of these people look like, approximately. So you have an idea of who we're talking about. Mercy and Dandy and Artemis and Darsh and all the other. Here, Taboric. Although I don't have a silver arm Taboric yet. A lot of people there. You'll also find information about the social media contest I'm running this month, including links to all my social medias. My streaming schedule is there. Uh, all of the uh, Merge World stuff. The ODG store for some ODG merch. There's Merge World stuff up there as well. Mugs and stickers and hats and stuff. I've got a Merge World shirt. I love it. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff there you might want to check out. Uh, a lot of fun things. So uh, I'd love it if you check out the website. Love to get some feedback on what you think of it. Something you'd like to see on there that's not there, please let me know. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard, of course, I'll be doing a four-hour Skyrim stream. Then after that, i got to go do my other trash job. But then I'll be back tomorrow from 9.30 to midnight. We're going to be doing a community Jackbox night. So if you'd like to play Jackbox with us, uh, you don't have to own the game. You don't have to pay anything. I host it. I've got the game. You just need your phone or tablet so you can log in and play along. Uh, we'll play that for about two and a half hours tomorrow and hopefully have a bunch of fun there as well. But thank you for coming by and hanging out with me. It is appreciated. Special thank you as always to my members. Uh, those of you who have an ODG membership, uh, your continued support um, of the channel is definitely appreciated as well as to the wonderful people who have also been donating and helping support the channel that way. While it's never ever uh, required to donate or join a membership, it's definitely appreciated when you do. Um, and thank you, Jim, for your donation today. And, of course, an extra special thank you for my moderators who put up with all of my cliffhangers and the rest of my annoying habits every single day. But you folks have yourselves a wonderful day. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, follow, click like, subscribe, whatever it is on that platform you're listening to. And uh, if you can give it a rating or... Uh, a review, if you'd like. That would be awesome. Uh, even a bad review is better than no review. I would love to hear it. So, thank you very much for your time. You have yourselves a wonderful day, 
and we will see you again very, very soon. Thank you for coming.